Night after night, I meditated with them. Gradually, I learned that they could enter my mind and could conjure up memories so vivid that they seemed real. It is possible to do this surgically by stimulating various parts of the cortex with electrodes, so I suppose that they were somehow doing it without the visible technology. In this way, I relived my whole life in vivid detail up to the present. Even as it collapsed around my ears, I came to a profound place of conscience. They brought me to what I have come to know as the only place where freedom truly lives, which is that place in the heart that gives up the sorrows by which we define ourselves, and which is the secret reason that we cannot face our visitors. For to face them in their terrible innocence is to see ourselves as we truly are, tiny creatures, vastly filled with the light of life and self-defined by the dark acts we have brought to it. They said very few words to me in clear speech, but two words they did say were, have joy, words that Anne brought back to me many times when I nursed the releasing narcotic of suicidal thoughts. On the last night we had the cabin, when we would be leaving in the morning forever, I sat up in the meditation room and begged them for some sort of reprieve. Then I asked, at least let me see you as you really are. Silence. Tears flooded my face. I was so sad that I could barely move. But the silence became more awful than ending it, and I finally went to bed. I turned out the light and lay there listening to the night that had come such a dear friend and looking into my future with a loathing that made my skin crawl. Had my wife not placed such faith in me with her love, I would not have survived the next few seconds. I would have certainly tasted my gun. But I did not taste my gun, and when I knew that I would not, and they knew it too, I suppose, there came a light in the front windows. It was a big light, glowing down toward the meditation room. I jumped out of bed and went to the window, craning my neck to see more. And there came, moving out from beside the house with utter precision and utter grace, a brilliant sphere. This light had rays that I could feel penetrating my skin with gentle pinpricks, and as it entered me, there also entered into me a sense and presence of another person, and of an explosively childlike joy, and of a peace that is the peace that is outside of time altogether. I had something close to a seizure, a paroxysm, as my body responded with fearsome, tingling pleasure to the most intimate touch I have ever felt, and I knew then utter compassion and ancient love. Then, as suddenly, it was all beyond my bearing. I closed my eyes, and when I opened them again, the light was gone. I turned around, and there in our bed lay my fellow journeyer, sleeping in peace, because whatever happened, we were together. I saw what mattered, and I went to her and lay with her and said I had seen one of the visitors. She opened her eyes, immediately awake. Did he tell you anything? I replied, he'd said, have joy, and she kissed me. Noctivigant presents The Summer of Streber. and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Nick, and I am joined by the screen memories of my abducted friends, Jay and Rory Wicks. Wait, wait. On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. He's not giving us time to respond for a reason. 
And we are here. Finally, the summer of Streber begins. Our first ever series. Yep. Uh, for listeners at home, this is going to be hopefully the first of many summer series that you can look forward to enjoying with your ear holes. What if they're at work? Does that mean they don't get to enjoy this? I mean, I've yet to hear of a workplace that bans ear holes. Well, I mean, you just said for our listeners at home, so. Oh. I mean, because my office is at my home, I guess the, the lines have become blurred. For you, maybe. Yeah, for me. It's deeply psychologically unhealthy for everyone experiencing that. I, 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 I'm enjoying it, actually. They're getting me back in the office with my cold, dead body. Anyway, uh, so guys, we are here to talk about The Communion by Whitley Strieber. Yeah. Uh, the first of four books we're going to be covering by Whitley Strieber. After this, we're going to be covering Transformation and then Breakthrough. Woo! And then we're going to wrap it up with one of his newer works, A New World. And interspersed with that, we're going to have some awesome interviews uh, for you guys to enjoy for our yes. midnight chat segments. All of a certain theme, uh, which I'm guessing you can probably guess, is uh, related to the abduction experience as well as UFO stuff in general. And we got some, we got some great people coming. Yeah, we do. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm pumped for a lot of what we have coming. Unfortunately, to stay on theme for the summer series, we had to, uh, we had to bump the devil back several months, and he's, uh, he's a little pissed. I'm not going to lie to you guys. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, to be fair, that interview didn't go well. He just kept prattling on about himself, and then when one of us said Jesus Christ as an exclamation, he got all huffy and left. I've, I've never once met a more sensitive entity than the devil. Are we sure that that was the devil and not American actor David Schwimmer? Are we positive? Uh, I not anymore. <laughs> yeah, here's the thing: is you could have finished that sentence in any way, but for some reason, the one that my brain just refused to prepare me for was David Schwimmer. I mean, how could you possibly have been prepared for like, that? I, I haven't thought about that name in a decade. Thank you. Reminded me of the of the weakest link in Friends. <laughs> oh. So, what'd you guys think of the book? I loved it. I mean, I I knew I'd love it. Uh, Whitley Strieber, when he uh, is really in his element, regardless of the contents of the book, he is a great poetic writer. His prose is very rich. It's very uh, fun to explore. Oh yeah, no, I agree. I I loved it. I loved it. I, I liked it quite a bit. I enjoyed getting to know uh, Mr. Streber and his family uh, throughout the throughout the horrific torture that these evil, evil, evil beings have put them through without consent or care. Yeah, I mean, that's one way to look at it. I'm sure we're going to get into it. Uh, so are we ready to begin? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Quote, when you read this incredible story, do not be too skeptical. Somewhere in your own past, there may be some lost hour or strange recollection that means that you, too, also had this experience. This book is about forming a new relationship with the unknown. Rather than shunning the darkness, we can face straight into it with an open mind. Fearful things become understandable, and a truth is suggested. The enigmatic presence of the human mind winks back from the dark. And so begins Communion by Whitley Strieber. With over 10 million copies sold in its first run and more since, Few ufological books can claim the same level of cultural impact. In fact, many assert that the image on the cover of the original 1987 run is not only the most recognizable depiction of a gray alien, 
but may even have been the template upon which our pop cultural image of an alien was built. And while the publication of the book invited no small amount of drama into Strieber's life, he still suffers constant backlash from elements within both the religious right and scientific left. He stands by his testimony nearly 40 years later and continues to publish about his ongoing experiences with the others up to the modern day. Yet, none of those books penetrated the cultural consciousness of the planet greater than communion, which introduced the abduction phenomenon to many for the first time. Prior to the start of the main narrative, Strieber includes a prelude in which he asserts the veracity of his claims. Quote, This is the story of one man's attempt to deal with a shattering assault from the unknown. It is a true story, as true as I know how to describe it. And it is a story which he shared with no less than three psychologists and three psychiatrists, all of whom tested him rigorously and found him to be of sound mind, much to the disappointment of Strieber. Once a dogmatic skeptic, the events he experienced tore his world open, revealing an underlying narrative of lifelong contact, which forced him to reevaluate not only his lone life story, but his entire concept of self. We begin on December 26, 1985. Strieber, his wife Anne, and their son Andrew were spending the Christmas holiday at a remote cabin in upstate New York. They had spent the morning of the 26th breaking in their son's new sled, followed by a family cross-country ski adventure and a dinner of leftover Christmas goose. Around 8.30 p.m., Strieber got up and toured the house, checking to ensure every window and door were locked. Then he checked under the beds and in the closets, unsure of what he was searching for, but following the same unnamed anxiety which had driven him to perform this nightly routine every day for the past several months. Once done, he and Anne retired to bed for a long winter's nap, unknowing of the recent sighting by his neighbor of a large, dark shape spotted in the sky near his property. In the middle of the night, he woke, hearing an odd, whooshing, swirling sound downstairs, accompanied by the murmur of people talking. Confused, he first confirmed that the burglar alarm was set, the panel glowing softly at his bedside. Then, bizarrely, he decided to lay back down and go to sleep, the first of many illogical responses he and others would have to the activities of the visitors. But not one that is uncommon amongst people who have this exact experience. Correct. He had almost managed to drift back off when he was roused by movement inside his room. The large double doors had swung open. He sat up and, for the first time in conscious memory, laid eyes on the strange creature craning its head into the open doorway. He described it as child size, no more than three and a half feet tall, wearing a smooth hat with sharp edges jutting out to the sides, and what appeared to be some sort of blocky, ramshackle armor or technological device. He could not see the entity's face, though, his mind blurring the image out he suspects as a defense mechanism. The entity and others rushed through the door towards him, and he blacked out. The next thing he knew, he was naked, his limbs splayed out to his sides as he floated through the air. He got the sense that he may have been carried or perhaps flown atop some sort of technological device, but given his state of utter paralysis, he was unable to confirm. His memory then jumped, and he found himself in the woods, sitting naked inside a depression in the earth. He was vaguely aware of a small figure in a tan bodysuit to his left, and another to his right, all seemingly engaged in some sort of operation involving the right side of Strieber's head. He recalled the workers as wearing dark blue coveralls, and that the one in the tan suit was explaining something to him, though he couldn't recall what. The next thing he knew, he was flying again, first through the branches, then above the treetops, until he found himself suddenly inside a small circular room. The roof was domed and made of the same gray material as the floor, and oddly, it was messy. 
He got the clear sense that it was some sort of living area and believes he spotted clothing discarded on the floor, adding credence to Jay's theory that the visitors are all irresponsible 14-year-olds. I have some thoughts. Then the fear finally caught up with him. Panic raced through him, so intense he felt he may go mad or cease being entirely. Quote, I do not think that my ordinary humanity survived the transition to this little room. I died and a wild animal appeared in my place. Still paralyzed, he could do nothing but sit in abject terror as tiny people raced about him at alarming speed, performing an unknown operation on him. He remembered one of them showing him a small gray box from which another entity, a dark, leather-skinned dwarf akin to those we read about in Passport to Magonia, extracted a large needle which, Whitley understood, was meant to go into his brain. Breaking through the paralysis a little, he managed to scream and thrash, believing the others would leave him brain dead. One entity, who would later become known as The Female, paused to ask how they could stop him from screaming. Her voice was described as audible, but strange, fizzing as if electronic. Following an inexplicable intuition, Whitley asked to smell her, and she allowed it. She smelt of cardboard, cinnamon, and a strange organic sourness. Before he could utter another cry, he suddenly heard a bang, saw a flash of light, and realized they had gone ahead and done the procedure while he was distracted. The next thing he knew, he was sinking into small arms and then helped along to another room, this one akin to an operating theater. In here, he got a clear look at the visitors and identified four varieties. Smaller, robot-type entities like the ones he saw in his bedroom, short, stocky dwarves with wide faces, deep-set eyes, broad mouths, and pug noses, tall, slender greys with massive, black, slanted eyes, and one very tall grey with circular eyes. Then came the event which would be weaponized by dogmatic skeptics and irreverent jokers alike to discredit and mock the victims of alien abduction, the anal probe. He remembers one of the stocky entities opening his legs and producing a device described as a foot-long triangular rod covered in scales and wires which, when inserted into his anus, seemed to move within him as if alive. And while he would later come to understand that this was part of an effort to gather biological samples, at the time he justifiably felt intensely violated and flew into a rage. His last memory before darkness again claimed him was someone holding his hand and making an incision in his finger. When he woke the next morning, he felt uneasy, but couldn't place why. Thinking back on the night, he recalled the memory of an owl peering in through his bedroom window. But there was something off about the memory, and after spending part of the day looking for owl tracks outside his house, he concluded that he had seen no owl. He then grew sick, depressed, delirious, and easily confused. He became short with his family and felt his sanity fraying. Quote, the realization that the owl memory was not true created troubling problems for me. I was aware that something had somehow gone wrong with me. The trouble was that I could not understand what it was. There simply wasn't anything in my life to explain it. What he couldn't know was that his body and mind were reacting to trauma, one which he could not actively recall. In addition to the emotional damage, he also noticed a wound on his finger right where the visitors had cut him. The cut soon grew infected and began to fester. He also noticed soreness in his rectum, making it difficult to sit for long periods. And later, on January 3rd, his wife noticed a scab behind his right ear after he reported a deep stabbing pain in that area. It is these pains, he believes, which stopped his mind from suppressing the memories of his experiences. They proved something had happened. His condition worsened, and desperate, he finally reached out to someone he had heard could help people in his situation. Bud motherfucking Hopkins. The man returns. 
He met with Hopkins, underwent an interview, then was assured he was not alone in his experiences. That, in fact, Hopkins had met dozens of others who had experienced something like what Streber had. During this meeting, Streber suddenly recalled an incident in which he remembered the cabin being on fire the previous October, an event which clearly did not happen as evidenced by the fact that the cabin was undamaged. Whitley resolved to speak to the other witnesses of the event and hoped that this would reveal a prosaic, mundane explanation for his anomalous memories. He never considered that the alternative may happen instead. The night of the October event, the Strebers were entertaining two old friends who would be staying for the night, Jock Sangelescu and Annie Gottlieb, two writers who fled to America in the 1940s to escape Soviet work camps. They had dinner at a nearby restaurant, then retired to bed around 9 p.m. Whitley later woke and, through his bedroom doors, noticed an odd blue light projected on the high ceiling of the cabin's living room. He suddenly thought that the house must be on fire, and then immediately fell back asleep. He was woken again by a loud popping explosion, heard his wife and son screaming, and when he opened his eyes, found the odd blue glow had now enveloped the entire house. He remembered walking downstairs where he encountered a deeply confused jock before everyone simply went back to bed again. The next morning, Jock and Annie both recalled being woken by a nightlight in the bathroom, despite the fact that said light would not have been visible from the guest room. When interviewing his wife Anne about the night, he expected to be told nothing out of the ordinary had occurred. Instead, she immediately recalled the loud pop that had woken her, as did their son, Andrew. Their son also remembered a bunch of people in his room, who explained to him that the pop had been Whitley killing a fly with his shoe. As Andrew said, quote, I dreamed that a bunch of little doctors took me on the porch and put me on a cot. I got scared and they started saying, we won't hurt you over and over in my head. That is my strangest dream because it was just like it was real. It happened in the middle of another dream when I was dreaming that me and Ezra, his friend, were on a boat. Likewise, Annie recalled waking with an understanding that the house had been visited by a spaceship, though she could not recall who had told her that nor how she knew. And thus, Whitley found himself at an impasse unable to handle the reality of his experiences, yet also unable to discount them as a dream. And he soon realized that his anxiety over securing and searching the house each night had begun around the time of the October event. Growing increasingly paranoid, he felt an urge familiar to many abduction victims, the urge to flee. He convinced his wife to move from New York to Austin, Texas, only to backtrack when he felt an intense watched feeling while touring a potential home and realized that the problem would not stay behind in New York. The visitors, it seemed, would not be shook off so easily. Which brings us to our first discussion question. Woo! Woo! Our first view of Streber's experiences are chaotic, to say the least, due in part to the chunks of missing time and the screen memories which seem to have overlaid his conscious memories of the events. So, let's talk about screen memories and memory gaps. Are these intentional deceptions put in place by the visitors, or are they some sort of psychological defense mechanism the mind puts up to protect itself from the trauma of encountering something outside its perceptual paradigm. And if they are intentional, why owls? Um, before we get into this, do we want to define what a screen memory is for uh, those that don't know? Yeah, sure. So a uh, screen memory is a term that you'll often see coming up in uh, ufological texts for uh, basically manufactured memories that some people believe are put in place to cover over actual memories of what actually happened during the abduction. So, um, and owls come up an awful lot in that. A lot of people who say that they have been abducted by aliens say that initially they saw them as uh, owls peering in through their windows. Wasn't screen memories a uh, 
a Freudian thing? Um, I don't. I don't remember off the top of my head if screen memories was was a Freudian thing. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was. Uh, I thought I remembered uh, something in this book. Strieber saying something about it being yeah. The term was coined by Sigmund Freud. Boom. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Google. Yeah, that uh, that 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 tracks. That that doesn't surprise me. Um. Sorry, I didn't mean to throw us off there. No, 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 not at all. That's 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 helpful that you brought that up. That it's like it does it that is it, it's helpful to know that it is rooted in Freud. That it predates kind of the UFO stuff. Yeah. Um. Not that not that that inherently lends it more legitimacy, but it is you know it's an it's a factor. Um. Right now, I am leaning towards screen memories are likely implanted just because. And and I know I will stick the giant caveat on this of we have not been able to study when people encounter things outside of their we, we we have not been able to study how people process ontological shock. We haven't really been able to do that for obvious reasons. Um, be, that just because it's very it's very hard to find true ontological shock in people sure. and have it right. be proved. We don't got cans of monsters we can just unleash on people. Yep. And uh, that would be an unethical experiment. Actually, it would it would be it's it's it would be too traumatic for the subjects, and you actually can't yeah, in modern sense. psychology conduct experiments that you know have a high chance of psychologically harming the subject. Okay, but what if I um, am not calling it science? I'm calling it fun crime. Uh, then you're a supervillain. Um, oh, then you go to jail. Oh, that explains my ambitions. Uh, but uh, but I think screen memories are more likely an implanted thing just because right now the science says that while it is possible to bury or repress memories, it is much more common for trauma to amplify the intensity of the recall and amplify the amount of time you spend dwelling on it because it's a survival mechanism. If something hurts you or scares you or causes you a great big shock like this your brain is engineered to keep you alive and safe and happy so it's going to so in most cases a healthily operating brain is actually going to zero in on those memories because they are the abnormality they are the problem that needs to be addressed um the process of suppressing memories is is a delicate psychological defense mechanism that it, it it's not even so much like the memories get deleted or put behind a firewall. It's almost like you just train yourself to whenever it comes up, you just whack it back down like you're a cat and you just don't like, like, you know how a lot of people will just like wake up in their car in their driveway and they're like, I don't even remember the drive home. It's like autopilot. You, yeah. It's like you, you do, you do remember it. You're just not consciously pulling it up because it's not giving you any useful information that from my memory psychology is not my field, uh, but from my pigeon drugstore understanding that that is how studied repressed memories actually work is it's closer to it's not that you don't remember it. It's that you've trained yourself to behave as if you don't remember it. And with like and you don't even need hypno like the, the the difference there between like what some people think repressed memories is is memories like that. Um, I know a couple of times uh, the three of us have talked about things that happened to us in our childhoods that were shitty 
that we didn't really repress it. We just stopped thinking about it. And it wasn't until we were older that we went, oh, right, that that did happen to me. I remember that now. Like you you can draw those kind of memories out without hypnosis or without a giant inciting incident. You just have to feel safe enough to deal with them. And so things like screen memories where you took the event and you remember the event, but things have been overlaid onto it to make it normal or mundane, that does not sound like something our brains would do to me personally just because it goes against the fundamental mechanism of survival. It's It doesn't actually... It doesn't help us to remember shocking events as mundane because the part of our brain dedicated to survival does not learn anything about how to protect us from that. You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, you just got my got me thinking. So you were talking about how that part of the human brain. I mean, we can't. The the human brain looks for those sorts of inconsistencies within itself. Yeah. And one thing that you'll often hear in abduction literature, especially regarding the owls, is I see an owl, but there's something wrong about the owl. I wonder if these are these screen memories are like you you said uh, being put in there by the visitors to try to cover their tracks without an understanding of how the human brain assesses things like that. So what if the reason that we know about the abduction phenomenon at all is because there's something about our psychology that resists accepting screen memories? I mean, it, uh, Streber in the book did say that his that his visitors like that that one of the things that he got from them was this idea that they're freaked out by how individualistic we are and how able to operate outside the conductivity of the hive that we're able to do. It, it's possible our individual brains are just infinitely more complex than any ones they've ever dealt with, and it they're like. We keep sticking shit in there, and then the thing that you said was going to happen doesn't happen. They'd make new shit to be scared about out of it. Well, and, you know, it's interesting because later, another area of the book, which uh, I didn't have a chance to get to in my summary, um, he does, uh, he spends a long time just thinking about the body of the, uh, of the visitors. And he came to the conclusion that their, their bodies seemed very simple. Not a lot of mm-hmm. bones, not a lot of muscle mass, uh, skin maybe some air sacs and one thing he said it was interesting when they pressed their hand flat against the surface their hand flattened like yeah. a deflating balloon so there, there's not no bones in there so maybe they are freaked out because we are much more complex biologically than they are maybe anything they've encountered I, I, mean, I think that's a I think that's a good point uh just because one at least in this the 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 at least the uh, the visitors that Streber describes are simple in ter- in if we're gonna compare it to like to humans uh, by a lot, um, and it seems like you know like we've we've said repeatedly the biggest thing is they don't understand us we don't understand them and I think there's just this giant circle of miscommunication so to speak just that 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 keeps happening you know. But uh, I think in terms of the screen memory bit here, uh, I mean, honestly, I, I don't really know. What, one thing that I did, of course, naturally, I looked at what the memory was. He replaced the aliens, the, uh, the visitors, with, uh, with an owl. So what is the mystical meaning of an owl? Well, most cultures say that it is wisdom, like an owl represents wisdom. But one that I really liked and I think is on par with this book and I think makes it even more interesting is one 
that you know in some uh lore i guess uh the symbology of an owl is transformation and that's kind of one of the themes of this whole book uh really probably this whole series hence the title of the next book that we're reading um but i think that part is interesting because i think if they implanted the memory why an owl uh, unless it was meant to be uncovered Right. Uh, you know, you don't go past the screen memory unless you're willing to go through that transformation. You don't go past it unless you're looking for that wisdom. So it's like a mental door that yeah. you're being offered. In in a in a sense, yeah. Uh and looking at like in like Christian mythology, an owl was actually looked at uh in a lot of ways as like evil and darkness. And then a lot of Christian uh like mystics, I guess. Uh, saw that as n- not darkness, but the wisdom that can be found inside that darkness. And I think that's even more interesting when you take into context the fact that Whitley Strieber is, to this day, still a practicing Christian. So he was presented with this, uh, these memories, and instead of seeing it as something that was innately dark and bad and avoiding it, he sought to seek that wisdom in that darkness and try to figure out what was actually happening here. And I think if they were implanted, that maybe that that the they were implanted with the intention of if you are going to overcome this and figure out what's going on, then this is how. It's actually a very interesting point. Um, well, I'm just thinking about the symbolism of an owl. Uh, I, me and my wife honeymooned in Greece, and we got to go to uh, the National Archaeological Museum there, and we get we saw amazing Grecian artifacts. But there were several uh, reliefs and carvings of Athena's owl. Uh, and the owl in, in Greek mythology does also represent wisdom there. And one thing I do wonder is if the owl image is something they chose to project because they know of its cultural connotations to us, or if they projected an idea almost. Like, I think, like, imagine if you could project the entire concept of what you just explained, that this is a door into darkness, there will be danger, but wisdom lies this way if you're, if you're brave enough to take it. And that kind of concept is what they were projecting. The brain took that and placed it within the mythological images that they, it is, are familiar to it. it. It made it safe to ingest in a way. So that ultimately, it's not in, under that, in theory, the others aren't putting the image of an owl in you. They're sending you information that your brain is symbolizing with an owl. I Does mean, that make sense? Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. And I think that, that that could very well be because ultimately, like, I guess what made me start thinking along this lines too, and this that kind of carried into it, is throughout this, uh, Whitley continues to say that he believes that they might be on some kind of uh, hive, like hive mind. And what if it's not that it is, or maybe it is like a hive mind, but their hive mind isn't connected to anything like a queen. It's they are innately connected to some kind of consciousness, like the universal consciousness. Like they are right? an evolved species that has, uh, everyone has become in, evolved Zen monks and they are all connected to the universal Godhead at all time. And that's the hive. E- exactly. And then, you know, they didn't have to do anything other than think about what their intent was, and then that implanted it, and, you know, the, and the universal Godhead then put that memory into, into Whitley Strieber, because 
Another common one that that you hear about is a stag. They the the screen memories are of a stag, and stag is a representation of spiritual enlightenment. You know, I'd be very curious, um, and unfortunately, it's going to be very difficult to look into this because uh, a lot. The topic of UFOs is not, from what I've been able to find, uh, been heavily explored, and ufology is not nearly as popular in uh, Eastern countries. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, I could be wrong there. It could just be nothing's gotten translated and nothing has been shared with the world. But I'd be curious if you were to interview abduction victims um, from countries that don't naturally have stags or owls and whose mythology doesn't feature them, will they see a different animal? That is that more closely reflects their own cultural understanding of that concept. Yeah, I would be very interested to see that, too. OK, we got to get a lot of money for a lot of plane tickets and we're going to make Jay learn all the languages. Why me? I don't know. I'm shit at language. I lost all my Arabic. All of it. I just feel like you have the most time to do it for now. Yeah, I'm, I'm finishing school next week, buddy. I mean, yeah, but. Who's to say that you'll be allowed to have a job? We're going to chain you to a radiator and we're just going to give you a phone. The only thing on is Duolingo and you're only allowed to obey the owl. Nick, I don't I don't want I like as much as I do really enjoy this plan. And then, you know, Jay not having to work is ultimately a great thing for Jay. Um, but I really need that second income. <laughs> Okay. I mean, also, I don't want to buy a radiator, so I'm going to pass on that for now. But it wouldn't even be hooked up to anything. Just so we, yeah, but I, here's the thing I know you're not going to be able to drag that anywhere, especially if we put it in the basement. Oh, I'll figure it out. <laughs> then they'll freeze, and that's not fun. Yeah. And also, I don't like it down here. It's spooky. It's not spooky. It's, it's just spooky. Dirty. It's spooky. It's not spooky. It's nice. Spooky. Oh, anyway, uh,. Yeah, so did we beat that question to death? I think so. I believe we did. Okay, before we go to the next section, I also just want to point out, what do you guys make of the, the ship being messy? Because we're not going to have a chance to talk about that down the I, road. I think that adds even more credence to the 14-year-old drunk children. I mean, yes. Um, I have two. I have two interpretations of the room being messy. Uh, and they are, they are... I have two different interpretations of it because... And I... Neither one of these is me positing that the visitors are inherently evil. I am trying to move off of that as a social worker. I am trying to stop assuming that they're evil. <laughs> like I have so I have two different wild speculations about what they what they might be and I use I use the messiness of the room as a uh, as as for both of them. Are we still are we still doing the question where you're asking where you're asking are they angels or are they yeah. devils? I will I will discuss it then. <laughs> okay, so maybe we'll we'll discuss it later then. I I just wanted to bring it up, uh especially because we were talking about kind of this idea that that we see things symbolically and it got me thinking. I mean, uh Streber in not just later in this book but in other books does explore ideas uh, explore possibilities that it's not, you know, uh, extraterrestrials that these mm -hmm. might be dimensional beings, angelic beings, higher dimensional entities, whatever you want to call it. And uh, I couldn't help but wonder is, you know, we, we read about in esotericism, uh, the, you know, the inward journey. What if the abduction experience is basically a, for, a outside entity forcing you up your own internal ladder? The ship you get taken to is your own inner space. And the messiness was kind of speaking to the fact that he has work to do. That's mm. one of my theories. I got yes. <laughs> I I robbed you of something. I'm happy. Oh no no no! I'm still gonna talk about it. 
All right. You're still going to hear my opinion. Okay, moving on to part two. Streber did the reasonable thing and sought out a therapist, preferably one with no prior interest in UFOs or aliens, but yet had an open mind. What a responsible man. I know, right? I love to see it. (laughs) He also wanted them to be a hypnotist, following advice from Bud, who believed it may help Streber uncover some of his lost memories. Oh, Bud. (laughs) And he found what he was looking for in Dr. Donald Klein, a psychiatrist at the New York Psychiatric Institute. After a week of more conventional psychiatric analyses, which revealed nothing new of note, Klein and Streber decided to go forward with the hypnosis session. Though, that isn't to say Streber wasn't dubious. Quote, We just don't know enough about hypnosis to call it a completely trustworthy scientific tool in a situation like this. And he is completely fucking correct. (laughs) Yeah. While Don Klein certainly didn't ask provocative questions, there is always the possibility that I was unconsciously eager to comply with an outcome that I might secretly have longed for. I might want powerful visitors to appear to save a world I'm pretty sure is in serious trouble. The next section of the book contains partial transcripts of his hypnosis sessions, which, over several visits, revealed much information about his ongoing contact. Streber was guided into a trance and then led to examine his memories of the October 4th event, memories which aligned well with his conscious recall of the day up to the moment he woke in the middle of the night. Under trance, Whitley grew increasingly distressed as he recalled an object passing back and forth outside the high window of his cathedral-ceilinged living room, casting an odd blue light. He then spotted a short figure standing in the corner of his room. He grew distraught, breaking into sobbing screams as both Klein and Hopkins tried to calm him. Quote, I saw something that looked like it had a hood on it, Standing over by the wall near the corner of our bedroom breaks into a panic. And I don't want it to be there. I don't want it to be there. Please, God, what's it doing to me? Stop, stop. Oh, oh, stop. What's it doing to me? Screams. Prolonged 20 seconds. He remembered seeing the figure sweep towards his bed and knows it spoke to him inside his mind, but he could not recall what it said. Streber's fear was so intense, he managed to wake himself up from the trance, forcing Klein to have to induce him again. Asked to try and describe the entity he saw, he said it was small, with huge black slanted eyes. It was bald and held a small silver rod or ruler which it touched to the center of Streber's forehead, inducing odd visions of the planet Earth exploding in a fiery red light. A voice told him, I won't hurt you. The little man then drew out a small needle and struck it like a match, creating the sound of the explosion that had woken everyone in the house. Whitley initially read this as a warning of impending catastrophe, yet he also couldn't escape the fact that the vision had aligned perfectly with his own pre-existing fears of a nuclear apocalypse. He then roused himself from the trance yet again and had to be put back under for a third time. He was guided through the jumbled images the visitor had shown him, first seeing the earth enveloped in flame, then an image of his son standing in a heavenly park, and finally an image of his father dying in bed while his mother dispassionately waited for him to die. In reality, Streber's mother had cared for his father until the very end and reportedly loved him very much. They called it there for the day, and Whitley left, now certain there was some kind of truth at the center of his experiences. And the more he thought on the images he had seen, the more he came to realize that they reflected more about him than the visitors. The final image of his father was likely a manifestation of his own guilt regarding the state of their relationship by the end of Darl Streber's life. In this, he saw a gift a true insight into his own nature. Quote, If this was a real visitor, giving me a real blessing from another reality, then why was it hidden in amnesia where I couldn't access it? 
Maybe my experiences were only a side effect of some sort of study, or maybe it was known even then that this rich treasure would eventually be open to me, because the whole experience has been designed in detail by insightful minds engaged in a slow process of acclimatizing humanity to their presence. In the next session, they moved on to the events of December 26th. Under hypnosis, he recalled the day as he had before, leading up to when he and Anne retired for the night. He remembered the odd figure appearing in his bedroom door and the strange boxy armor it wore, possibly to protect it from the shotgun that Streber kept beside his bed, which we should note he had purchased without prompting around the same time his routine with the locks began to manifest. Can you imagine being those visitors and just being like watching Whitley? It's just like, uh, Mr. Streber's purchasing a firearm. Oh, God damn it. We've reached that stage. Can you imagine? I, I just like to imagine the uh, the visitors like in their in their UFO drawing straws to decide who has to put on the blocky armor and be the first one to poke their head into that bedroom. Come on, guys. This isn't fair. I've been shopping the last four <laughs> ones. <laughs> this time he remembered standing, taking his pajamas off and telling Anne goodbye before they took him. He was taken downstairs where he found a black metal cot floating on his porch. Well, inwardly panicking, he nonetheless climbed onto the cot on his own, which in turn carried him off. Despite him being nude in the middle of a New York winter, he didn't feel cold. In fact, he felt nothing, a comfortable numbing sensation sweeping through his body. Then, he again found himself sitting in a depression in the woods. Only this time, he remembered he was still strapped into the cot, which soon shot up into the sky. On board the ship now, he recalled seeing the same entity that had, in his conscious memory, asked him to stop screaming. He recalled that upon seeing her, he had blurted out that she was old, to which she said, yes, I am old. She then explained the coming operation to him, but he could not recall what she said, only the terror he felt. He screamed that they had no right to take him, to which she asserted that they did have a right. He then watched horrified as she pulled out a long gray object which at the time he believed to be her penis. This was the probe that was placed inside him. However, whatever the visitors were doing seemed to hit a bump in the road when Streber was unable to get aroused. The entity asked him, could you be harder? To which Whitley asserted that he could not, because she was so horrible. <laughs> he said he wished she were a dream, to which she replied that she could not be that. He then recalled returning home as he had departed, brushing his teeth and going to bed. Klein then pressed Streber to return to the face of the entity, whom he had instinctively identified as female, despite the lack of any distinguishing features that would set her apart from the others. When asked why he thought she was female, he said, I don't know, I just think it is. She's got a big head and her eyes have bulges. She's sort of brown-skinned, not like a black person, but like leather, yellow-brown. And when she opens her mouth, her lips are all... Well, she hasn't got lips exactly, but it flops down. Her lips are floppy. I never saw her talking to me. You know, the truth is, I don't know what it was. I don't know whether it was a bug or what, and I don't know if it's a woman or not. Now, all of this would have been disturbing enough, if not for one additional memory which swam to the surface of his consciousness at the end of the session. He suddenly recalled seeing rows of beds, upon which soldiers were sleeping, attended to by various visitors. He then recalled seeing his father being there as well, and that the naked terror on his dad's face had upset him greatly. Then, he found himself on a train. Streber soon realized that this was not a recent memory, but one from childhood. When he came out from the trance, he recalled that in 1957, he had taken a train trip with his father and sister when returning from a family visit in Madison, Wisconsin. He recalled his father screaming, and a voice insisting to him over and over again that, you are on a train. Yet, the more he pried into the memory, the more distraught he grew, 
and the session was ended for the day. He left Klein's office, unsure if he would rather believe himself insane or believe in the reality of his experiences. Disquiet hounded him into the evening. Quote, The visitors persisted in my mind like glowing coals. I could see those limitless eternal eyes glaring right into the center of me. Visitors seemed to inhabit every shadow to move in the course of the sky. Desperate, he began to research into the UFO phenomenon and soon found that his experiences mirrored those of other abduction victims to a startling degree, and that many of those victims had experiences which went all the way back to early childhood, seemingly adding credence to the odd vision he'd had of the train. And to the nature of the visitors themselves, he began to break down the possibilities. What if the aliens are our own dead, and humanity is the larval form of some greater life which we hatch into when we die? What if they're a manifestation of the collective unconsciousness? Visitors from another world, another dimension, or maybe even travelers from a distant future. With all of this buzzing in his head, he soon returned to the cabin for the first time since his hypnosis sessions, and standing where he had the nights of October 4th and December 26th, he felt more sure than ever that he was remembering real, lived events. He began to think more deeply on the odd female entity he had encountered. She felt intensely familiar to him, and he suspected may have been part of his life from the beginning. This would be in line with what other abductees have reported, namely that they often have a central figure among the visitors who acts as their comforter or caretaker. Quote, she was undeniably appealing to me. In some sense, I thought I might love this being, almost as I might my own anima. I bore toward her the same feelings of terror and fascination that I might toward someone I saw staring back at me from the depths of my unconsciousness. Which brings us to our second discussion question. So, the topic of hypnosis is fraught, to say the least. Uh, so we know from our research into the satanic panic, it is really easy for a clumsy hypnotist to accidentally or intentionally create memories rather than uncover them. In fact, there are some psychiatrists who claim traumatic memories like Strieber's can't be repressed in the first place. So what do we make of Strieber's experience here? Did Dr. Klein somehow manufacture these events? Or does the efficacy of hypnosis on abduction victims highlight something unique about the nature of the visitors? Well, I think, like with any kind of technique or tool that is unclear as to how it works, I think it's very important that we take it all with kind of a, a grain of salt, so to speak. Sure. Not saying that we should say that these memories, these events didn't happen because a lot of it was uncovered from hypnosis, but I'm saying that, like, it, we have to look at the bigger picture uh, of it all because ultimately, yes, the memories themselves were uncovered through hypnosis. Maybe that was, you know, uh, a tool that helped unlock them. But ultimately, I think he was on this path anyway. Um, not maybe not necessarily to to aliens, but note who he reached out to before he even went into hypnosis. Uh, he started talking to Bud Hopkins. Right. You know, he, he was already on the path. True. You know, he was already going this direction, one, one way or, or another, it seemed like. So I, I think that it's safe that, uh, at least in, in this situation, that the hypnosis merely guided his memory to something that it was already going to do. So, like, in theory, if he hadn't gone to hypnosis, it would have happened down the line anyway from meditation or something like that. That's what I think. 
because like like I said, I, I, I feel like he was already on the path to, to this. Um because he why else would he have reached out to somebody like Bud Hopkins right off the get? You know, he he I, I even if it was subconsciously, I think he knew what was going on. Yeah, I mean I definitely got that sense, uh, because the decision to involve Hopkins did seem inexplicable, especially because at that stage he was still wrestling with is this real, is this not? And then to go straight from there to I'm going to contact you know, a well-known name in the in the area of alien abduction. Right. That's that. That's a bit of a jump. It would be like, I mean, uh, it would be like him, his psychiatrist having been John Mack. Which honestly, I was waiting for John Mack to show up here when they're talking about Bud Hopkins and hypnotism. I was like, oh my god, please tell me John Mack was Whitley Strieber's hypnotist. I don't think Strieber would have gone to Mack because Mack was so involved in abduction specifically, and that was one of the things he wanted was somebody who didn't, who wasn't a part of that community already. I, I wonder if he hadn't not insisted upon that and just taken whoever Hopkins sent him to if he would have ended up with Mac. I almost I, I almost guarantee you would have because he went to Hopkins. Hopkins probably would have sent him to Mac. I mean the timeline matches up, I yeah. think. Uh actually when he was uh when he was joining his uh his hidden choir, uh his you know that the 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 experiencers group, I was like, this is Mac's group, isn't it? It's gonna be Mac's group. <laughs> and it's like, oh no, it's not. Um I mean it might have been. It just might not Mac might not have been there. And actually I think this is a little early for Mac. So I think he didn't get involved until the 90s. I think you're right. He uh, And his hypnosis wouldn't have been until like 93, 94, I think. Yeah. But what what I was thinking of with Bud Hopkins is remember um, remember in Twin Telepathy when we were talking about the psychic gravity wells, like the, the receivers seem to, according to some of the studies, seem to be pulling actively psychic messages in rather than mm. other people sending them out. I was almost picturing Bud Hopkins as a kind of psychic gravity well for experiencers of like he's almost like a whirlpool that's just kind of pulling these people in like he's he's almost that's, like an entrance point. That's actually really interesting because yeah. if you think about it, I mean, this dude has popped up not just in alien stories for us because he was a huge part of Leslie Keen's book about oh, the yeah. afterlife. Yeah. Like this dude is like literally a uh, like a magnet for the paranormal. I mean, you, yeah. one one other thing to remember is he was one of the earliest kind of Mount Rushmore figures of the paranormal slash UFO community, and he was one of the few uh, who had no issue openly embracing different aspects of the paranormality continuum. True, true. Uh, yeah, no, for sure. So he's going to pop up in a lot of places, but you know, I think that is interesting, and I. We do see figures like that in history, don't we? Where mm-hmm. you have certain people that just seem like they were involved in a bit too much for one human being. Yeah, uh, they're all over the place. These larger than life characters. Uh, I'm sure part of that is uh, flanderization, us mythologizing their life story and their struggles. But at the same time, I mean, it. it yeah, Bud Hopkins seems to ha- turn up an awful lot. Has anybody done a biography on that man? Yeah, we should probably do that. I think. Yeah, and he has a bunch of books too. We, we oh yeah, no, I already know we're gonna do that. I mean, I I would just be interested to see somebody else writing about his life story in general. We got to contact Ralph Blumenthal. Get him on it. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah. Uh, but uh, to to answer the actual the actual question, to, if going off of the transcripts, which at this moment I have no reason to doubt the transcripts. Um, I do not believe Klein was was influencing um, was influencing Whitley's recollections. He was not. He was actually doing 
basically pretty much what you're supposed to. The only thing that I objected to in those situations is I'm sorry, Bud should not have been in the room. That was it. Uh, that is that yeah, is extremely that unethical, but that 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 was on Klein. And also this was a different era. And it's entirely possible that Klein was treating this not as an actual psychological session, but as something completely different. But I, I think it's also possible that Straber may have requested Hopkins yeah. to be allowed in the room. That's that's also fair, and that that cha- that does change the situation. It's just under ideal circumstances, in my professional opinion, it should have just been Klein, Whitley, and the tape recorder. But again, like like you guys said, he might have. It's entirely possible he requested Bud, and that that alters the that alters the specifics of the situation on if a third person can be there or not. But I don't I don't think he was influencing. Whitley's recollections and I lean more towards the fact that hypnosis is uncovering these these parallel incidences that are not operating like normal traumatic memories because again traumatic memories don't behave like this by and large that's that to me indicates a phenomenon we have not yet been able to categorize professionally well and kind of adding what Rory said earlier I was looking at the notes I took for this question and uh, the thing I kept coming back to is much like Rory, what if these memories are meant to be found? Uh, again, I, I kind of like this now that we're, we're on this track of seeing the owl or those initial odd memories almost as an invitation to play. And if you don't, if you just continue going about your day, it's fine. You know, we for all we know, every single human being has been abducted. We, we have no way of knowing because maybe most of us have ignored the invitation to play or we forgot about it or we moved on with our lives. Uh, but what if there are these latent memories within us and all it takes to unlock them is to willfully seek them? Um, and so it could be through hypnosis. It could be through meditation. It could be through uh, automatic writing or whatever method you want to use. LSD. LSD, yeah. Uh, whatever method you want to use, kind of that idea of the treasure is there for you to take. But not everyone is going to have the strength to, as we were talking about earlier, enter that darkness, enter that uncertainty and seize the treasure. At least it's fun to speculate about at the very least. I mean, maybe. I mean, you know, we're just speculating here, right? I mean, that's all we do. So what if it's not that the aliens are here? It's not that the alien or not that they're not here. It's not that the aliens, the visitors were an entity from another place, but rather that they are a reaction of this is Whitley Strieber's path to enlightenment. And it was being presented to him through these alien abductions, because no matter what you, you look at, no matter how you, you do it, everything, it, it, that whole fra- that old phrase, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Kind of works when it, when you think about it in terms of like, when you are trying to change yourself to become better or more, um, or uh, you know what, when you're, when you're trying to change yourself, when you're trying to level up your consciousness, so to speak, you have to radically change everything about you. You have to radically change your outlook. You have to change how you, 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 you look at uh, the world around you because one big part in everything that we've looked at is separating the I from everything you, mm-hmm. you have to, ego you, death right yeah ego death so what if in this situation this was you know you know whatever the timeline was it something happened it clicked with 
with uh, Whitley Strieber that he had to dive down this path, and it just happened to be that for him, it's aliens. Yeah, well, and in uh, thinking back to Gary Lockman, one of the things that came up several times in Secret Teachers uh, was this concept that a lot of early esotericists had that, yes, there is this liminal inward reality, but one thing that was very explicitly stated by several of them is that it is an objective reality. Mm -hmm. There are things which live there where that is their home plane. What if that's what aliens are fundamentally is that it is it, you know, again, we have that uh, quote from the beginning of the book, his uh, uh, something looking back from his own unconsciousness at him. They are the entities which exist on the shadow side of reality in that mental cognitive space. Yeah. And sometimes we'll blend over with each other. Maybe for all we know, uh, they have ghosts of their own, but it's us. They see flickers of us moving about. Yeah. Maybe that's why they, they react so weird to us and why we react so weird to them. Well, yeah. Can you imagine if like we found a door and you go through that door and it is an entire world of Bigfoot, like uh. nothing but big feet everywhere. And like you are, you're tasked with invading their lives and abducting some of them for research. Wouldn't you be terrified? Absolutely. <laughs> that is an eight foot tall ape that can rip me limb from limb. I'm gonna go slap it in the face while it's sleeping. Well, that's a good point because these creatures are like by Whitley Strieber's description, they're smaller than us. Uh, he even says uh, later on in the book that they couldn't stand up to us in a fight. Because they absolutely couldn't. No, I, I kind of feel like it, a, a fist fight between these greys and a human would be like popping a helium balloon. They would just be uh, right. flying around the room as their gases escape. They'd be. It's like uh, the alien from American Dad. Uh, Roger. Roger. Yeah, it's like him. Like he's he can't fight. I cannot. No, I because I can't. Every time I read the Galactic Confederation, I can't imagine a room full of rogers and that's what you're you're doing to me with that well you know what he is the most accurate uh to whitley streber's description of a gray so he's he's short he's a gray i think the pot belly is and the um, yeah he's you know grays can be fat too i don't know if they can for all we know they're plants stop being fat phobic to the aliens nick we do whatever i fucking want so I just I just want to point one thing out. Uh, they were fucking with the right side of Whitley's heb, head. They were fucking with the right hemisphere. Oh, so yeah. So kind of going back to uh, again, back to secret teachers, the whole yeah. idea of the right hemisphere versus the left. So they're fucking with the side of the mind that sees the world through symbols and is, according to Lockman, theoretically connected to the knowledge of the universe. So maybe the they're right trying side to unlock it. Yeah, that or the right side is the door they came in through. Oh yeah, yeah that, they might Ooh. have. Yeah, they the, the right side might be the door they came in through. The right side might also be where they have to implant the screen memories and things like that. If it's like that, might have been what they were talking to Whitley about when he can't remember. They might have been trying to explain to him. It's like no, no, no. We got to go through the right side of your head. Like we're gonna fuck up some. We're gonna fuck up the wrong shit if we go in through the left side of your head. We're not gonna. You're not gonna be brain dead. We do this all the time. We just. It's like we have to do something to this hemisphere of your brain specifically or this situation will be infinitely harder on you hmm. right yeah well and if you look at it if you look at it not literally or not in the, the the physical sense too but in a metaphysical sense that could just be another uh uh it's another clue you know they're saying that uh, you know it, it was implanted here because this is the part of you that needs to be woken up so to speak you know 
Okay, so I'm going to, again, this is all a very woo-wee-woo speculation. But if, we, if we're going to continue along the train of thought that we see these entities symbolically and everything that we have to read into everything that we see related to them, uh, I'm thinking back on the infamous anal probe. What if what that really was was them attempting communion in a way because they kind of looked into his brain and said, okay, what is intimacy? What is a connection? Because that's what we're looking to for. And they found sex. And not really knowing what it was, they tried to present that idea to him. But because he's in this frightened state, his mind interprets it as this horrific sexual assault. That's interesting because even later on in the book, he talks about the, he starts talking about the nature of three duality and then the triad. Yeah, which, uh, which actually I'm going to get to later, but uh, that is a common symbol both in alien abduction and in our folklore. Right. And uh, that could be that, that could have been a misattempt from them trying to be, to show like some kind of triad between them and him. They, they might have also been attempting to induce gnosis because a lot of, you know, chaos magicians, they they believe a lot of them believe they reach the gnosis point on orgasm. Huh. It's possible that they were like, well, sometimes they understand more after they ejaculate and then they can't get Whitley hard. And they're like, fuck. Um, so you mean I, uh, you mean I, I, I put I put I put this in his butt for nothing. It is a G spot. Did we just commit rape? Yeah, we committed rape again. Fuck. Uh, put it back. Put it back. <laughs> put it back. Quick drive, drive away very fast. <laughs> oh, jeez. Okay, are we ready for the next part? Yeah. Over the course of the summer of 1987, Streber came under assault from a deluge of memories arising from the murky corners of his mind. Quote, that my conscious life was nothing more than a disguise for another reality. It is easy to speculate about such a thing on an idle evening. But when one considered the terrific intensity of the experience I had remembered, thinking that this might have happened again and again had the potential to shatter me. Nevertheless, over the course of the year, he attempted to uncover as much of his lost memories as he could via hypnosis and intense introspection. In that quest, he contacted an old childhood friend and asked him what the oddest memory he had from their childhood was. To no one's surprise but Streber's, the memory involved him. At age 13, Streber had apparently told his friend that spacemen had taught him how to build an anti-gravity device, which Streber was constructing in his bedroom. You know, childhood. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I certainly built weird crap like that. I don't recall doing that. And while Streber did remember such a project, a simple device made of electromagnetics which relied on counter-rotation, he did not remember why he built it, only that when he plugged it in, the central magnet spun, the lights flickered, and then sparked. His machine destroyed itself, and several light bulbs in the house burst. The very next day, he felt a strong urge to not be at his house, an urge which proved correct when a mysterious fire started on the roof above his bedroom. Other memories were a little more inexplicable. For example, he recalled being stalked and menaced by Mr. Peanut at the San Antonio Battle of the Flowers Parade. You know, childhood. He also recalled being at the University of Texas in 1966 when Charles Whitman went on his infamous shooting spree despite the fact that he was not on campus at the time. The story felt true, and he'd certainly told it many times, but when he interrogated the memory, he was stunned to find it absent. Through careful analyses of these impossible events, more memories began swimming to the surface of his conscious mind. He regained memory of another incident in which he recalled one of the visitors appearing at his bedside and performing some sort of procedure involving Streber's nasal cavity. 
He woke the next day with severe knots inside his nostrils, a symptom which both Anne and their son also manifested around the same time. Later, Hopkins would inform him that nasal probes were among the most common reported. Memories of flying over rooftops and mysterious lights menacing his childhood campground soon came to light, as well as several memories of round objects floating in the sky above him, though few were as troubling as a series of events he recalled under hypnosis. In 1967, he was attending the University of Texas and had just sat down for a hearty TV dinner when he suddenly found his food cold and that several hours had somehow passed. He got up to reheat it, but felt woozy. The next thing he knew, several more hours had slipped by. He woke, disoriented and thirsty, only for time to skip yet again. He found himself standing in front of the sink, pouring water into a glass already full to overflowing. For reasons that remain a mystery to both us and Streber, he then rushed outside and saw something in the sky which he later told friends was a meteor before he went to go find himself breakfast. Among the jumps, he had lost 24 hours of his life. Soon after this event, following the same impulse to run that had nearly seen the Strebers moving to Austin, he decided to pack up everything and move to London. Everything was fine for a few months, until another nighttime visitation left him with memories of flying over the chimneys of Chelsea. Following another powerful urge to flee, he went to Italy, met a young woman who agreed to travel with him, and spent six weeks in Florence. At least, that's what he thought happened. When later visiting Florence on a book tour, Strieber suddenly realized he had no actual memory of the city. So then, where had he been all those weeks? The next memory he could verify was ending up in Strasbourg on the Spanish border, from which he then went to Barcelona, and after that, back to London. In addition, some events he had already remembered began taking on a different connotation in light of his revelations about the visitors. For example, one night in New York, the Strieber's radio began talking to them, seemingly holding a full conversation with both he and Anne, though the only part he remembers were the ominous final words of, quote, I know something else about you. In another incident, every member of the Strieber family was woken by a small white thing, described almost like a child with the classic ghost sheet costume on, which jabbed at them in their sleep. The same entity would later be seen by a babysitter watching their son, and through it all, the urge to flee remained constant, driving them to different homes all over New York, then Connecticut, then back to New York, and while he didn't know it consciously at the time, the visitors stuck with him every step of the way. Meanwhile, the hypnosis sessions continued with Dr. Klein, and after one session in which they reviewed what seemed to be another abduction event, he was haunted by a particular image. He found he could perfectly visualize the female visitor. In fact, he couldn't stop visualizing her. The vision felt real, as if it was not a memory but some sort of connection to her. He soon found he could, by act of will, adjust the point of view of the image, allowing him to see all sides of her and the fine details on parts of her body. It was this image which was described to artist Ted Jacobs, who, using the same process used by police sketch artists, produced the famous image of the gray alien which adorns the cover of the original 1987 run of Communion. As Streber came to better understand his own history with the visitors, they seemed to notice. The night of March 15, 1986 marked a watershed event in his relationship with them, Andrew's friend was staying the night and, during dinner, claimed she saw an object covered in bright lights fly through the backyard. None of the Streber family saw it, on account of their positions at the table in relation to the back door, but later that night, Streber was woken from sleep by three of the dwarf visitors standing by his bedside. Hi, Whitley. They were soon joined by one of the tall, thin entities, 
wearing what appeared to be an odd cardboard imitation of a business suit, complete with a pocket handkerchief. I had to put the book down. I, I loved that image. I, I want to make myself a cardboard suit now. Despite the hilarious absurdity of the image, he was terrified and remained mostly paralyzed until the event ended. It wasn't until the next morning when Streber realized the events of the previous night were quite different from those he had experienced previously. Quote, what happened the night of March 15th was fundamentally different and more open than any other contact I have had. The visitors almost irrefutably announced themselves to me. They allowed me to see them while in full possession of all my other memories of them, albeit in a more or less completely restrained physical condition. And they preceded their appearance to me by the witness of the uninvolved child, the one person there that night who had absolutely no relation to this at all. Which brings us to our third discussion question. So, like Streber's mysterious female entity, many abductees claim to have a central handler or group of them, being the entity which takes point when interacting with them. What purpose do you think these individuals serve within the abduction experience? Do you believe that the feelings of familiarity and affection often reported by abductees towards these handlers is a manipulation or a clue as to the ultimate nature of these interactions? I have one pretty simple answer here. So, you know, like with any job, there are managers. So, somebody is responsible for this, this job, so to speak. So, who is it that is in charge of Whitley Strieber? Well, in this case, it's this female entity. I don't know if by any means that that's true, but maybe she's just the point person. I mean, maybe. You know, it was just assigned, Whitley was assigned to her. Well, and that makes a lot of sense, especially if we are interpreting his experiences as interactions with another three-dimensional flesh and blood entity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, outside of that, looking at it from like a, a metaphysical sense, I mean, it could just be for whatever reason. He, I mean, it's easier for us to grow a connection to something that we are, that, that we feel connected to, right? Um, so he presented the initial image back when he was a child, and it just carried carried with him along along the line or uh, all throughout the time. You know, I, 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 I outside of that, I, I don't. I don't really know. I mean, that, that's a completely fair answer. So, uh, so, so Rory's, Rory's answer is the one that I think is most likely is just it's, it, it's a manager or I even, I honestly, I thought of like animal handlers at zoos. It's his caseworker. Yeah, that's <laughs> actually exactly, yeah, it's his caseworker of it's just like, this is, of it's just like Whitley is one of your clients. It's your job to make sure he doesn't go fucking insane yeah. the next time we bring him up here. I, I mean, please. she did kind of seem done with his shit. Yeah, she's you're old. Yeah, I'm old. <laughs> it's like I've been old since we met Whitley. It's like, forget every time. Uh, so I think that's I I think that that is the most obvious interpretation that springs to mind for me. Pushing past that into esoteric. That was the obvious one. The most logically sound. That is the most logically sound explanation that springs to mind and your interpretation tracks because you're very smart and very special and I love you very much. You had the save. You would, you would save the statement, but those, those, those compliments there at the end, they can sense dishonesty. <laughs> I mean, those are true compliments. Yes. I am smart. And special, and I love them very much. All true statements. But 
pushing pushing past that into esotericism and woo and wild speculation um what if that is our right brain maybe i mean so that yeah. that is the manifestation of well in that in that sense i mean not even just right brain but the whole kind of concept of the higher self the mm-hmm. yeah so what if that that entity is your own higher self trying to guide you through the process. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was thinking of. Like, you know, again, that they were fucking with the right side of Whitley's head. All of these things appear in these layers of symbols and obfuscation. Uh, and what I keep getting stuck on is you don't have the exchange of you don't have a right to do this. We do have a right. And the idea of if that is our right brain, it's entirely possible that she was going, this is my body too. And I have been trying to alert you to the fact that you are severely depressed and you are not doing anything about it. So I've had to resort to this bullshit. And now you're screaming about it. I I really do love the interpretation that alien abduction is basically mental illness, (laughs) kicking in your door and grabbing you by the collars and say, you're sick. You need medication and professional help. Go to a therapist and not Donald fucking Klein. <laughs> I I wonder then if that is the case and that is just the right brain, whatever. Uh, does that mean that when this inevitably happens to, to all of us, that mine is going to be a pirate? Maybe. I mean, I, I'm just measuring a gray with a little pirate hat and that's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I I, I wonder. I you had to put that stupid image. In I my did. Head. I now did. I'm going to be laughing about it all evening. Uh, or what if what if Rory doesn't get a gray at all? It is just straight up. It is it is just it is just Captain Charles Vane. Just ah, like hi, oh, not him, please. Uh, he's scary. <laughs> it's Captain Rackham. Just ah, like, less scary. It's just, like, just a Hello. chimp. It's just a chimp dressed like Blackbeard. <laughs> what? No. Why is this? They they stop the entire abduction and they wake Rory up and they're like, okay, we have to interrogate this. Why is it a chimp dressed as an overrated pirate? Thank you. He is an overrated pirate. As for the chimp, I do not know. You just like chimps, maybe? Not nearly as much as I like rhinos. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was the time we were at the zoo and we saw that chimp hurl himself down a hill and you thought that is a kind of self-destruction I can get behind. It could be because my parents used to always tell me that they were going to take me back to the zoo to be with my real relatives, and those were the monkeys. Okay, on that dark note. Uh, but <laughs> it was a joke, and it was a funny joke. I, I thought it was funny. It is, it is, it is actually quite funny. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I'm wondering, it's, I'm wondering, it's like those might, that might just be whatever sits in the right half of our brain by and large mute and by and large paralyzed because the right brain can't really control shit unless it's separated from the left hemisphere. And maybe the reason that it often appears as like the, the quote unquote opposite sex is that's just, maybe that's just how the right brain styles itself as just kind of like, I'm you, but I'm not you and your perception of gender and sex is the easiest way that I can draw this sharp line between us. Mm. I mean, also, I mean, on the topic of kind of gender and spirituality, which I know is a very uh, sticky topic, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. But I have heard before this idea that, you know, every person contains within them a, a male self and a female self. So what if in any given incarnation in this physical world, 
one side gets to be the I, and the other side has to take the back seat and be the guy in the chair. I mean, that's that that would that would kind of make sense, right? I guess. I I I I'm sure. Uh, I mean, one you know, I I, I guess one different way to frame it is kind of just saying the same thing you said looking at like gender and spirituality is is sticky especially right now right especially with two you know know, a trans man and a non-binary person on the show it's hard to think about that stuff but um instead of thinking of it as the two genders that a lot of people do think of gender as a spectrum right right and the idea, the idea of the duality is femininity and masculinity. And even, no matter who you are, there are going to be aspects of femininity and aspects of masculinity in who you are, just because that's the nature of us. Sure. So I, I, I don't think it's as sticky as it needs to be. It's just a hot topic. Yeah. I guess that's a better way to put it. Uh, now, one idea I also wanted to bring up, though, uh, regarding the female entity. Uh, one idea that Schrieber raised in the book, which I spun my wheels on for quite a bit, was a the idea of what if these visitors are our own dead? Um, and now there's going to be more stuff in some of the later books we're going to cover, which are going to explore this more in depth. But I kind of went down that rabbit hole. I thought, okay, what if that's true? What if we live in this world and when we die, we become these, we either become aliens or what I think is probably more likely we would become these spiritual uh, disembodied entities. And what and a lot of abduction victims uh, or channelers or people who say they're in contact with ETs, one sentiment I've seen come up again and again in the literature is that the bodies we see are not them. They're suits that they have to use to enter our reality to kind of exist in a three-dimensional way with us. Mm-hmm. And another thing that often comes up in a lot of what we've read is that in the afterlife realm, there is no time. Time is largely an illusion here of living. So putting all that together, what if it's Anne? What if it is Anne after she died, but time doesn't exist there so she can come back in spirit form to any point in history? She gets, ass- she gets assigned as the handler for her husband. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> In a weird way, that makes sense, especially when you look at the 2020 book that he came out with. Ah, oh, God, now I feel like yeah. we have to read that. Yeah. So, uh, for wrestlers at home who don't know, uh, in 2020, Whitley Strieber released a book called The Afterlife Revolution, which actually I'm going to mention in the About the Author as well. But um, it was written post human, it was written post death by him and Ann Strieber after Ann Strieber died. Because um, supposedly during life, they had done joint meditation exercises. Uh, with the goal of being able to contact each other should one of them die first. And supposedly, right after she died, but before he had told anyone about it, he started getting calls from friends who said that they had just spoken on the phone with Anne. Uh, And so he ended up with his dead wife writing a book about the nature of the afterlife. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, I mean, the book, too, but I'm still thinking about what you said. And it's really, you I've, sprung it on me, so I don't have a lot to say about I, it, but it's really interesting. I always really enjoy when I get to see like a spark of enlightenment in Rory's eyes, followed by fizzing confusion <laughs> as they try to work through it. Yeah, that's exactly what's, ha- that's exactly what's <laughs> happening. It, it, it weirdly adds another layer of humor to, you're old. Yeah, I'm old. Just- you gotta pay for that, you son of a bitch, as soon as you get here. <laughs> 
and also it, 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 the fact that when the fact that he kept seeing the images of his of his mother sitting by while his father died and like i know that i know that his personal interpretation was that was about his guilt over not being as close to his father as he would like to be i in my professional opinion whenever you get symbology or nightmares like that in in someone's case it, it doesn't mean one thing it usually means at least three or four things um and i'm wondering if because he described his and Anne's, Anne's marriage as being very deep, and then he used similar terms with his parents. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just, it, it does, it does feel like Anne is as a symbol is this constant undercurrent, and she's not overtly stated in a lot of these experiences, but she's this con. Well, especially with what we learn about her side, which later. we're getting in the next section. Yeah, of it's like it's I. I think that tracks just because it's very clear that in a way that's quite subtle and has been part of this since it started. He's or she's his anchor in a lot of ways. Yeah, she absolutely is. She's his wife. Thinking about this idea, you know, what is one scene that kept coming back to me Uh, in the later parts of the book? I didn't get a chance to cover this in the summary, but they're laying in bed and Streber is musing about how to name communion, how to name this book. And his first thought was to name it body terror. And Anne was laying next to him and kind of in her sleep, it seemed like she said, no, call it communion. That's what it's about. And so I you know, thinking, what if, again, this was all a guided experience with the living Anne and the dead Anne working in tandem to lead him along? I mean, I have a feeling, and this is based off mostly the comment you made and what I know, you know, outside of this book, I have a feeling that that is going to be a central theme that we talk about for the next three episodes. I think you're probably correct. I might have just put something together about that. You know, I was saying, like, it's like, what if it's also just his, his what if it's his right brain? And that, remember, you're, I know you're going to get into the next section, but I'm very excited. And saying that whole thing about, like, that's not my role. I'm yeah. not supposed to go. I'm supposed to sit back. I'm supposed to be quiet. I'm supposed to provide the emotional haven. Isn't that exactly what our right brain does? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and it was also what the female Grey was doing. Ah! As Streber continued to struggle with his experiences, he resisted the urge to tell everything to Anne. In fact, thus far she knew very little, just that something had happened with Whitley involving mysterious visitors, possibly from beyond the stars, and their son knew even less. All of that changed when Anne made the decision to also undergo hypnosis, this time with Dr. Robert Naiman, as to assure that Dr. Klein would not unconsciously lead her to constructing memories which supported her husband's narrative. Anne believed that she would be interrogating the memories of October 4th and December 26th, but was instead first directed to the evening of July 13th, 1985. Whitley had recently found a drawing in Andrew's journal, which depicted an entity entering the home and Anne fainting leading him to believe that something had happened that day, though Anne had no active memory of anything odd. On the day in question, Streber had been away from the home on business. Much like she remembered consciously, Anne recalled that there were workmen at the house building a deck for their pool, and that she'd spent the day with her son. However, the closer they got to that evening, the vaguer her memories became. In fact, even under hypnosis, she was unable to recall anything that happened after dinner. As for the October 4th event, She did recall waking because of the loud pop and hearing Andrew screaming in terror, 
But more importantly, she recalled the feeling that she was not meant to get out of bed. This was something Whitley needed to do, a message which would be echoed several more times throughout the session. And while she could not identify who they were, she sensed that they were friends and that she simply wasn't supposed to know anything about them. As she said, quote, Well, I've often felt that there are things going on with Whitley that I wasn't supposed to know. I'm supposed to kind of help him afterwards to deal with it. That's my role, but I can't stop them, you know. He just has to. She further indicated the sense that they were there because Whitley had a unique mind, though she was unable to clarify what exactly that meant. Her role, as she called it, was continually reinforced as the one who is uninvolved, save to keep Whitley sane following his experiences. As Streber writes, quote, Her hypnosis did not reveal a person trying to concoct a story, but rather one trying hard to avoid remembering something she had been told in the strongest terms to forget. She was compliant, all right, but not with the hypnotist. She complied, it appears, with something else that issued previous, stronger suggestions, and they overpowered the hypnotist's efforts for a very obvious reason. My wife appears to have been made to believe that my mental health depends on her not remembering and her providing me with a safe haven in ordinary reality when I need one. Still hoping to protect their son from the ongoing contact, they decided they would not subject him to hypnosis until he was old enough to consent to the procedure on his own. Instead, Strieber began to ask Andrew about his dreams, and soon confirmed that his son was also a person of interest to the visitors. He recalled the dream in which Andrew and his friend Ezra were fending off an attack on their boat when suddenly he found himself in a hospital in the future. He recalled being taken out of bed and placed onto a cot that was sitting on the porch and undergoing tests from smiling doctors who used an odd blue light which allowed them to see inside him like an x-ray. Streber then asked about the image he had found in his son's journal, and to his shock, the answer kicked loose yet another lost memory of his own. While Andrew remembered standing in a cornfield with his mother, staring up at a large craft hovering above, Whitley suddenly recalled a dream in which he, Anne, and their son were standing in the cornfield doing the same thing. He remembered waking from that dream to the sound of someone knocking on his door. Outside, he found Andrew, naked save for a blue cap surrounded by friendly rescue workers, who at the time looked like normal people. Streber remembered asking about his wife, to which the rescuers responded that she was fine and she would be returned soon. Later that night, his son also complained that sometimes he would feel an odd electric feeling while trying to fall asleep, and heard a disembodied voice asking him about his day, his feelings, and private stuff he didn't wish to talk about with his father. He also recalled a skeleton standing over him while he slept, though he soon corrected himself, quote, You know, the thin ones that are always saying we won't hurt you? Them. It's not a skeleton, it's one of them. I haven't heard those described as skeletons before. That's really interesting to me mm-hmm. in this book. I mean, I could see it. The, the super thin, long, white. Yeah, I can see it for sure. But yeah, I'd never, I'd never seen that either. Now, note that Streber had never once described the entities he'd seen or the words they'd said to his son. Yet here he was describing the same entities and echoing the same messages that had dominated Streber's own experiences. Though that wouldn't be the last insight Andrew provided about the visitors. He and Streber had been reading a book of haikus together, and one night without prompting, Andrew said, Dad, you know, we like the haiku and all the beautiful words, but the thin ones, it's like they are haiku. Inside, they are haiku. Which brings us to our fourth discussion question. So, Streber and his family all seem to have different reactions to the visitors. His son sees beauty, his wife a black box she's forbidden to open, and himself a confusing horror show. Are these differences due to their own perceptions, 
or a possible hint about the nature and motivations of the others. Put another way, are they angels or demons? And when I say that, I'm not talking about the actual supernatural entity, angels and demons, more are the good guys or bad. So I don't recall which which episode I brought this up in, but I, I brought up the idea of what if the visitors that we have, what if the alien visitors specifically that we have are here like in kind of a clandestine operation and they're not supposed to be here and like they're, you know, I, I compared them to PETA that they 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 have been forbidden by their government of it's like stop screwing with the humans it's a delicate situation just leave it alone space peta yeah maybe I, I i maybe they are legitimately space peta and they are just indignant at the thought of it's just like you're not offering the humans the ladder up into ascension the humans aren't ready for that i think you're being condescending to the humans and they're and like, what if they're what if they're just coming and taking us and they're doing all this stuff kind of like just like, don't freak out, don't freak out. Ah, he's screaming. Um, he's really upset. And they're just they're like, we're trying to help you. And like maybe part of the reason that the ship that Whitley saw was messy is because this was a really low budget operation. And these people, like, despite their despite their presumed Presumably positive intention intentions based on if I'm going with that interpretation, the charitable interpretation of they do want to help and they do legitimately believe that they have a right to do this and that they are they are here under positive pretenses. Maybe they are just like, yep, we have all been arrested 16 times for doing this. This ship is stolen. Uh, we <laughs> live on it constantly instead of being able to drop it off and clean it up. And uh, this is how fucking dedicated we are, Whitley. This is how dedicated we are. We are going to super prison if they catch uh, us with you. Turns out there is no such thing as like a short gray or the dwarves. That's just what they look like for malnutrition. <laughs> I haven't uh, eaten anything but space ramen in years. Oh my god! They're yeah. like caught in perpetual graduate school. Yeah. Um. So that is that is one possible interpretation I have is that they are that they are space pita and not or like interdimensional pita. Some some form of like some form of like operation with a lot of heart. Maybe not a lot of sense, and maybe a some misinterpretation of the information. But they genuinely believe that we have been kept in the dark and mistreated and they are attempting to liberate us. My other thought is more esoteric than that and maybe they are the maintenance crew from our own subconscious and we occasionally, people like Whitley, get a glimpse to the inner workings of their own mind and what they're actually seeing is uh, these, these different levels of their own consciousness attempting to repair something that is wrong because I, I've brought up several times his distress started before the hypnosis sessions, before he un uncovered the memories. It it's possible that he was just developing a panic disorder. And what he was seeing was his attempt to interpret a glimpse of his right brain desperately attempting to correct the problem before it led to suicide. Yeah. Um. Well, I that's kind of interesting because, okay, if we go back to the the idea that we've been speculating on that uh, these things may come from our within ourselves, uh, that they are maybe part of a mystic experience. If that were true, then maybe the differences in how people are reacting to them uh, 
is better described as this. Those ultimately reflect their relationship with themselves. Yeah, that is the state of the relationship with themselves. Whitley is depressed. I mean, he's a writer, so he hates himself. I can just we all know that. Yeah, <laughs> and so it just uh, that's how it manifests. It manifests as these horrifying violations. Uh, whereas the young innocent child sees beauty in it. I guess for Anne, that means Anne is close to herself. That's what I was going to, and this is not, obviously I did not know Anne Streber. I did not have the the privilege of knowing her, uh, but just just based on, you know, other, other white moms of the mid to late 20th century, uh, that especially those that uh, their husband is, is, are important, intelligent, creative men. Uh, repression is the name of the game of especially the things yeah. she was talking about of like, I am here to help Whitley after he deals with something horrible. He comes back to me and I am the safe, nurturing, healing space. It is it th- that this that's just straight up the thing in like women's psychology is that cis is that cis women, particularly cis white women repress everything because they feel like it is their duty to care for everyone around them and it's like if i feel even a fraction of what is going below the surface it going on below the surface it's all gonna go to shit i think that i mean i i like i like what you said jay i think that i think all of that very well could be um I think it could be a reflection of their individual path that they're that they're on, um, and I mean, especially for the kid, you know, him seeing beauty—that's not surprising. Kids tend to see the good in everything. They don't. They haven't experienced the bad to be so jaded yet. True. Although I'll say this: I was a morose little fucker. I mean, there there are exceptions to to every to to every little thing, but even in that, morose or not, even now, and even in high school, you are still an over, uh, overwhelmingly positive person. I mean, that's true. Uh, morose, you know. I mean, come on, in this day and age, how how could you not be? Uh, but like, I don't know. I th- I think this is one of the most interesting things to think about. If the if we're if if we go under the assumption that these are physical entities. It's hard to explain why they would be so radically different from one one person to the next. All people in the same household. That I I I, I don't really know. That's it. It's weird. I mean, unless we're dealing with different factions that are taking different members of the family for some reason. But that's but hard. that that seems astronomical, right? And it it would seem like. Yeah. It would see like again. There would have to be some reason for the Streber family to be important enough to have three different factions fighting yeah, over them. Like, sure, I guess technically that that could be possible, but I don't see. I, I it doesn't seem likely. Uh, I I think likely if this was a a physical or if they are physical beings that it's the same ones, especially because there are similarities between descriptions especially between the son and and Whitley. So I think that lends uh, a little bit more like credence to th- it being the same faction so to speak. Um but I I I it, that so okay. So if they if we believe that the screen memories were implanted 
uh, by these other entities. Maybe the reason why the kid sees it as beauty is because, you know, one, he's a kid and it's not going to, you know, he's not going to see it in any other way right now. Um, but if going under the, 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 what we've talked about before, if, if, if Anne is both the gray and is her, then what she saw makes perfect sense. She can't go there because she can't see herself. Interesting. That actually makes a lot of sense. Like she can't be involved in and she can't be involved in that side of it because she's already involved. You know, she's already there. That's interesting. And she isn't if it's a future her that's coming back, then she can't be there. She can't even see that yet because she hasn't experienced it yet. And that that might explain Andrew's um, that might explain Andrew's experience of seeing them as like a things of beauty. It's especially it's like he's we talked about in twin telepathy that uh, psi powers seem to fade as people get mm-hmm. older. If he Andrew was still young enough that according to according to the what was posited in twin telepathy, he was probably still very in touch with the psi part of him. It's possible that if that if that handler, if that case manager was Anne, it's entirely possible on some level he went, oh, mom's here. It's fine. Right. And of course, he's going to see his mom as beautiful. You know, that that family, I got nothing but impressions that that family loved each other. Oh, absolutely. Know? They seem like a very loving family. Uh, no, it's interesting. I mean, I, 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 I like your guys' thoughts. Uh, I do think if they are, if it's not Anne, you know, if, if, if we're wrong about all that, which it is likely. Odds uh, are we're wrong. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> You know, then it, it would have to be all perceptual. It, it's just how they're interpreting these events. Either that or these visitors, let's even go straight. They are a flesh and blood ET species. I mean, if they're just another people, then I'd expect there to be ver- great variation among individuals. Now, granted, yeah. that might not be true in a hive situation, but it could just be Whitley had one particular case manager, Andrew had a different one, and they created very different experiences for them. Mm hmm. They would have to, because everybody's different. So they would have to give them different experiences based on whatever their end goal is. Because, you know, like, okay, as an example, um, I, you know, I train. That's, that's what, what I do professionally, I guess. And I, I've done this, uh, this one training. Uh, two will be three times next week. I'm doing another one. And both times that I've done the training so far, Exact same slides throughout the whole training, right? But the way that I presented the material has been different both times because I have to react and and act based upon how the people that I'm training are interacting with me, how they are reacting to my, you know, my jokes, my the material, whatever it is. I have to adjust how I do things based on how they are engaging with the material. So if I mean if I'm doing that for for mortgages then sure as shit these aliens are probably doing the same shit for us you know they have to adapt how they are you doing whatever their goal is based on the individual the people that they're trying to train or they're trying to teach or they're trying whatever 
Um, and when I was coaching, when I was doing like one-on-one coaching with people, it was even more so like I had, I literally, I had notes of how I do my coaching sessions, how I do everything that I do. But each individual session was always different because each individual person is different. So of course it, it, that makes sense that it would be. Well, and what I like about that is it, that preserves Whitley's impression that they're a hive mind because it might not be that they're different. It might just be that they're acting different based on us. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, if anything, that makes more sense if, you know, than them, you know, if, if based on everything else, it, it, it would make more sense that they would be reacting to us than the other way around. And it wasn't just that, you know, Whitley got a weird, bizarre, ancient, horrible case manager. <laughs> right. Gertie the touchy. <laughs> but it worked. Yeah, it did. That's true. It did work. So weird or not, it it worked. Another thing that was that was that was springing to mind as as Rory was talking was uh, the you know uh, you were talking about the fact that different people like need to be trained in in different ways and all this. Uh, I was thinking about the idea in in the karmic cycle in Eastern traditions of there are some people that it's like you're not meant to be doing the heavy lifting work this time around. Your karma is not at a stage where you can even like grasp that. And there are times that there there are certain traditions where if like you go to a guru and they're sensing that your karma is just like not ready, they're like, go home, like just just live your life. Don't try to do this. You're going to hurt yourself. I'm wondering if and I'm wondering if like Anne's dharma, like Anne's duty this time around was she was not prepared to receive whatever that information was. And if these creatures exist to help people move along the stages of enlightenment, help people fulfill that final dharma, maybe it's like, she's not ready. We will hurt her more if she gets exposed to this. Or it's the reverse. Yeah, she's, she's a bodhisattva. already there. She's a bodhisattva, and that's why she, and she, her purpose was to guide Whitley. Oh, my God. God, we were on the same. We were yeah. on the same same thought there. Yeah. Oh my God, that actually makes way more sense than well, what I was thinking. Especially because at various points in the book, uh, Whitley goes out of his way to even state that Anne never balked at this. She she looked into she when this started happening to the family, she never questioned it. She was almost like she was ready for it. Yes, she didn't need to know about it, and she kind of stayed in the dark about it, but she never disbelieved him. She never, uh, you know, chastised. In fact, she seemed to encourage him to go down this path. And it makes even more sense when you take into context the fact that she wrote, she helped him write a book after she died. Maybe that, maybe that black box, maybe that, that, that repression of it, maybe all bodhisattvas do that because that's one thing that I've always been fuzzy on of it's like, uh, because I can't, I can't seem to get a straight answer of it's like, do they remember when they come back? And I think, the answer is nobody knows if they remember if they come back. Maybe she is she is a bodhisattva, and it's like, nope, I gotta bury that way deep down under the floorboards because the minute I acknowledge that final truth that I know, I'm gone. I can't come back anymore. You just mm-hmm. dissolve into a spiritual being. Yeah, it's like you 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 rejoin you rejoin with whatever that that particular tradition is calling the ultimate reality. Very interesting. Fascinating. All right, we ready for the final part? Let's do it. Woo! In the final section of the book, 
Strieber attempts to take a step back and analyze his experiences in relation to his ongoing UFO research in the hopes of drawing some conclusions about the nature of the visitors. And the first conclusion he draws is that it is likely more complicated than Little Men from Mars. No. (laughs) In fact, the historical record is filled with legends and myths of Lutons, gods, fairies, and other entities whose behavior closely mirrors that of the visitors. A conclusion which indicates to me that Strieber also enjoyed the works of Jacques Vallée and John Keel. He did quote Passport to Magonia. And also, I mean, spoilers, I've started the next book and he directly talks about reading these books. Ah, there you go. He also came to believe that the U.S. government knew more about the visitors and had since the 40s. I know, shocker. Though he warns that this is a conclusion drawn on shaky ground. Quote, I found myself in a minefield. Real documents that seemed false, false documents that seemed real, a plethora of unnamed sources, and drifting through it all, the thin smoke of an incredible story. Among the mire of false reports and redacted government documents, he uncovered two pieces of evidence which, he believes, prove his point. The first being a letter written by Dr. Robert Sarbacher to UFO researcher William Steinman regarding an inquiry into Sarbacher's work consulting the Defense Research and Development Board during the 1940s. Sarbacher claimed to have been tasked with performing some of the initial scientific reviews of the materials retrieved from crashed UFOs. He remembered the materials were light and very tough. Furthermore, he heard that bodies had been recovered, which were of an insectile nature. Strieber's second piece of evidence was the infamous Roswell press release, in which the U.S. Air Force openly stated the crash of a saucer in New Mexico, only to immediately retract the statement and construct the now-familiar weather balloon story a story which Strieber does not buy easily, pointing out that the initial Air Force investigators who reported the crash would have been more than familiar with weather balloons and box kites. Furthermore, the rancher who discovered the craft and announced it was alien later recanted his statement only after spending several days being held by the U.S. government for interrogation. The rancher's family has since held firm that he was forced to recant his testimony under duress. Strieber also noticed that government cover-up had fueled scientific disinterest, and that, on this topic, the scientific mainstream has made odd bedfellows with Christian fundamentalists, with both camps insisting that UFOs cannot possibly be real, and as such doing all they could to suppress discussion of the topic. As one group, the Institute of Creation Research is quoted as saying, quote, To date, there is not one iota of real evidence in either science or the Bible that intelligent beings were either evolved or created anywhere in the universe except on Earth. In any case, it is the planet Earth which is the focal point of God's interest in our universe. There is no need to look, because there couldn't be anyone out there. Pride is a sin. A statement which, to me, smacks of someone who stands ready to shove their head up their ass at a moment's notice. God damn right. (laughs) I'm gonna shove my head all the way up to my kidneys because I'm an American. (laughs) I want the first nuts and bolts visitor we ever get in a UFO to fucking come out on like a little podium that they digestruct with a button push and they just clear their throat and they read that quote out verbatim staring (laughs) directly at the president of the United States. Strieber then goes even further, wondering if part of the reason this topic is so resisted is because solving it will require a complete reevaluation not only of our concept of reality, but of ourselves. When looking at the mythological history of gods, demons, and fairy folk, he came to a certain unsettling possibility. Quote, My point is that there may be far more to this than science or government or even religion can separately address. 
It would seem that our civilization is not paying attention to what may be the central archetypal and mythological experience of the age. If so, then this is the first time that man has simply refused to respond to the ghosts and the gods. Is that why they have become so physical, so real, dragging people out of bed like rapists in the night? Because they must have our notice in order to somehow be confirmed in their own truth? Whoever or whatever the visitors are, their activities go far beyond a mere study of mankind. They are involved with us on very deep levels, playing in the band of dream, weaving imagination and reality together until they begin to seem what they probably are, different aspects of a single continuum. To really begin to perceive the visitors adequately, it is going to be necessary to invent a new discipline of vision, one that combines the mystic's freedom of imagination with the substantial intellectual rigor of a scientist. Conclusions which he drew primarily because of the symbolic nature of the visitors. For example, he spends a time analyzing the symbolism of the triangle, a shape often seen by abductees aboard their ships and as anomalous marks on their bodies. Not to mention the triangular or pyramidal craft often reported in UFO canon. As Strieber points out, the triangle has long been a symbol for the triad, the holy trinity in our mythology, and not just a Christian symbol, we see the three-sided shape associated with various manifestations of divinity throughout the body of our collective myths including the Celtic triple goddess Bludwid, Aztec mythology, the Egyptian pyramids, and in Taoist philosophy where the triangle represents the transformed self. In all of these mythologies, the triad is seen as the coming together of two equal forces to create a third from their combined energies. Two people come together to form a child. Two cultures find common ground and become a stronger whole. And in a spiritual sense, the self and the higher self must come together to form the ideal self. In much the same way, he speculates that the use of the triangular symbol by the others may be meant to represent the eventual coming together of our species, a coming together which can only occur if we can begin the dialogue as equals. In this light, perhaps the entire point of communion is to slowly raise us up, bring us to the point that we can all directly engage with the visitors and together enjoy the creative and spiritual truths that come from that union. And while it would be easy to say that he's seeing patterns where there are none, there does seem to be evidence within the body of UFO literature which indicated to him that the visitors at least play upon our beliefs and expectations. For example, the first incidents of UFOs being associated with blackouts only began to occur after such a possibility was explored in a stage play, and the first instance of a UFO stalling out someone's car occurred after a similar event was published in a popular novel. And just as they play with our fiction, they may take symbolic or mythological errors to communicate with us in a language we can instinctually understand. Solving the mystery of the visitors will require us to see past the symbols they present to the enigmatic truths at their core. That is not to say Strieber is wholly confident in his conclusions and is quick to point that out. Quote, We do not even know if there are visitors. We do not know what they are or why this is happening or what exactly is happening. The real center of the experience lies not in some facile explanation. It lies in opening oneself to the question as it really exists, with all the mystery and danger. However, if he was to take his experience at face value, he believes they do present an image of the visitor's agenda, an agenda of contact, involving a slowly deepening relationship with mankind. What began as distant saucer sightings soon turned to crashes, close encounters, and abductions as if they were trying to acclimate humanity to their existence. Perhaps, he wonders, this slow process is due to fear of our species. Or maybe it is because they can only exist in our world at all if we have the perceptual flexibility and understanding that allows us to believe they exist. 
and in turn, the visitors must come to the same understanding of us. Quote, truly, such an act of mutual insight and courage would be communion. Two universes spinning each other together, the old weaver of reality re-threading creation's loom. Who knows, maybe really skilled observation and genuine insight will cause the visitors to come bursting to the surface, shaking like coelacanths in a net. Regardless of their intent or nature, though, Strieber argues that the path forward is clear. To solve this mystery will take nothing less than the complete restructuring of how we view science, spirituality, and the self. And this transformation needs to occur within each individual as they navigate their own relationship with a greater reality. As he notes at the end of this book's epilogue, quote, Once the thread is in hand, our own mythology will tell us where it leads. For it will be the same thread that the maiden Ariadne handed to Theseus when he stood before the maze of the Minotaur, young and strong and mad with courage, and we will all go down the labyrinth to meet whatever awaits us there. Which brings us to our final discussion question. What do we make of Strieber's final message in the book? Do you think our current scientific, religious, and governmental institutions can engage this topic in any meaningful way? And if not, what changes do you think we would need to see before we, as a species, can begin to get a grip on this issue? Big question, I know. So, one thing, I just, because I, I can't help myself, um, and then we can, we can talk, you know, go into the question. Just one thing I want, wanted to point out here. Uh, he mentioned uh, the Celtic goddess Bloodwet. Bloodwet. Yeah. Best, best I can get to. Uh, yeah, I, you, it's Welsh. Good luck. Um, I can't. I, I read these names all the time. I have no idea how to properly pronounce them. Um, I've never heard of Bloodwet referenced as a triple goddess. And there are so many triple goddesses in Celtic lore. Uh, Danu, Bridget, the Morrigan, just off the top of my head. It's like their favorite thing. Yeah. Uh, because three is huge. Uh, doesn't uh, Coretowin sometimes get... It's part of uh, Danu. Or I'm sorry, part of Bridget. Okay, okay. I um, did not know that. Yeah, Interesting. Inspiration. That's the, the goddess of inspiration. Uh, but something that wasn't brought up that I thought was interesting, and I looked it up to make sure I was right, uh, but Bloodwed, one of the, the things that they think that that word means is either flower face, which is... But it also might be the original word for owl. What the fuck? Interesting. So... I just wanted to throw. I wanted to throw that out there as just more food for thought. I've never, and nothing that I can find actually references that uh, goddess as a triple god, uh, triple goddess. So I'd be curious to see where where he got that information from. Yeah, that came straight out of the book. That was yeah. No, I I know because I remember reading it, uh, reading that as well, and then going, I've never heard that before. But you know, nonetheless, mistake or not. It's very interesting if that was a mistake because ultimately uh, the other meaning, some of the other meanings behind that God is super interesting. If it was a mistake, it it might not have been a mistake. It's just he might not have been the one making the you know making that decision. Exactly. Interesting. That. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I'm gonna think about that. Yeah, but no. So to your question, Jay. Thank you. I suppose. <laughs> um. I think they can engage in this topic in a meaningful way. Um, I think I think we just have to we have to have a societal shift 
on this 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 is this is i can i can my father is alive and he is in the future spinning in his grave as i say this <laughs> um we have to maybe start making some cultural redefinitions to what we consider evidence and also to what we consider truth and by by that i mean is we need to move past this strictly materialistic western idea of what those things mean because and and it's 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 fading this is not this the, the world is homogenizing but there are other cultures where though the, the the concept of of truth as being a hard material reality that you can cut and measure and weigh it, it that's not a thing everywhere that's not a thing for everyone and like in it's like especially in like like Sufi like he he brought up he brought up Sufis multiple times in the book and from what from how I've always interpreted Sufism truth and metaphor are hazy opposites at best and but um so moving back to like our 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 scientific institutions I I think they can engage in this topic in a meaningful way I just think that those are two halves in an equation that are not ready to be put together yet of like kind of like the maybe as a society in terms of our science, we are not yet at a karmic stage where we are able to engage with that type of truth. <laughs> I think I'm going to, I think my answer is going to be a little different than Jay's here uh, because I think the reality is that we cannot engage with this topic in any meaningful way with our institutions the way that they are. And here's why I think that. Thinking back to the past, specifically thinking about alchemy, previous to nowadays, alchemy was, I mean, ultimately it was very mystical, right? But it was sought after like a scientific thing. It was sought after and treated like something scientific at the time. And from that, they were able to not just evolve science, like actual physical science, but they, the, so much esoteric thought and philosophy has come from those same people that were engaging in those same things. And until we get people who can separate, not, you know, maybe not separate, but who don't separate the materialistic side of this and or the physical side of it and the spiritual side of it and yet and and rather merge them back together like they like we talked about with secret teachers and how they used to do both both of these things they could engage in the science but also engage in the spiritual well it's like the quote that uh, i read earlier they have to combine the mindset of a mystic with the mindset of a scientist exactly and i and i think that's kind of uh, where we where where we've lost lost it at this point, like because right now it's no matter who you are, it's like you're you're either one or the other. You're not both. Like you even even scientists who are actively practicing Christians will tell you that they separate their work from their faith, and I don't think they should. I think that they should be engaging in both. And the questions that they ask from a metaphysical standpoint, they should seek those answers in a physical standpoint. Like, until we can mesh that all back together, I don't think we can move forward. 
And I think that's one of the things that's lo- that has been lost when we went from, you know, right brain focus to left brain focus, but however you want to look at it. You, real or not real, that, that the shift happened, and you can point at it in history, you know. Um, and I think, I, I think while we exceeded great things technologically, I think we've lost our way for what may actually be the ultimate truth. Quite possibly. I mean, I, I feel similarly. Uh, I, I like both your points, but I, I think I'm, I fall somewhere around in the middle. Uh, to me, I think that we, can, we can't, we will not be able to solve, and I'm using the word solve loosely, we won't be able to solve this topic in saying we won't be able to fully understand it with the institutions as they are now. And, and the, uh, there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, somewhat uh, Rory just said, I also think that there is um, an awful lot of people who are only able to really look past their own very liminal material well-being. And when you start talking about, I mean, let's say that, hey, what if what if this is a spiritual thing? What if this is talking about the ultimate nature of mankind and that this world is ultimately only a small fraction of reality to people who feel like they rule the world that takes a lot of their power away? And I feel like they would be pretty invested in making sure that doesn't happen. And unfortunately, they're the people who control the purse strings of our science and our government. Unfortunately, power is the evil that's literally driven this world apart. Now, that said, I do think uh, we see in the modern day with uh, you know the new Pentagon office um, and Project Galileo and more and more civilian scientific organizations looking at this, I think we're beginning to see some meaningful movement on it, but it's still very much grounded in the physical. Yeah. And that said, I I'm complete. I'm, I'm still 100% okay with, if they say, well, we figured it out. It is aliens. I'll be like, great. That's so cool. Now we're going to have a lot of questions. Um, but that said, I, I do worry about if I do worry that one day we're going to have a reckoning as a culture because we're going to come to a point where with this issue or issues like it specifically where we can no longer advance on one single axis where we can't you can't solve it scientifically and you can't solve it spiritually you need to kind of have this holistic whole soul approach to it mm-hmm. um and developing that i mean outside of some massive cataclysmic event that changes us on a fundamental level we're talking generations oh, yeah. we could be we could be, you know, for all the talk of disclosure and things are going to happen, we could be at the very, very tip of a massive iceberg and that is going to take hundreds of years to unravel. Yeah. We don't, we, ultimately, because we don't know what we don't know, we don't know how far the destination is from where we are. All we can do is take the next step and the next step and hope to God that we get to see something cool before we die. Like, ultimately... I, I think, yeah, there's a lot to be hopeful for, I guess, in, in, with modern day. But like you said, it's so grounded in the physical still that, like, even with Project Ga- Galileo, like, sure, there's a lot of really, you know, really cool people involved in that project. But if you look at Avi, what Avi Loeb has said, like, he doesn't really have any interest in the woo side of things. Right. I, I just wonder if that will change if they do hit a hard roadblock where it's like there very clearly is another factor here, which is not be which they cannot account for in their current paradigm. I think that there are people involved in that project that will push for 
that evolution if that moment ever comes. But here's the thing. I don't... that when, What roadblock are they going to hit that isn't already technically already there? You know, because we don't know really anything. Right. And I mean, as we've lamented on the show, the experiencer narrative is being woefully left on the sidelines during this uh, push for research and investigation. Which I think is a huge mistake. I mean, personally, because I, I personally, based off everything we've read, lean towards the interpretation that these beings are somehow deeply cognitively involved with us. Uh, if they are outside entities, then they've been with us for an awful long time. And if, yeah. and the alternative is they're part of us or they are part of some sort of cognitive psychic realm or maybe the afterlife realm. In in which case, you know, we're definitely I don't think we're going to have a, a resurrection of spiritualism as a hard science. So I, ultimately, it will. I think it will take a lot of doing and it'll take a lot of strife. And I think honestly, to, to accomplish it, um, it will take a whole lot of humility, which I think is going to be the hardest part because a lot of I don't know, something about the modern day. I mean, I don't know if I don't know if this was true 200 years ago, 300 years ago, thousand years ago. But based off what I've read of those time periods, it didn't seem like it. Uh, they had preserved a sense of mystery. Then you had the monsters in the dark wood. There was this belief in werewolves in the night and witches. And a lot of people see those now as uh, superstitious hokum. But at the same time, what have we lost by losing that sense of mystery? Uh, by accepting that there are things that we do not understand. And I know that you know there are people out there who say, well, there's a lot that science admits we don't understand. Uh, you know, we talk about things like black hole, uh, not black holes, but uh, dark matter, uh, dark energy, things like that. But at the same time, that's still based around existing math. That's based around things that you can uh, that you know work in that very left brain logical world. What happens when you start running up against elements of reality that simply break that model? And I think we're going to see a whole lot of strife, mostly because of a failure uh, to practice humility, a failure, the belief that, well, no, this can't be real because if it's real, I was wrong all this time and that can't happen, which I think there's way too many people who feel that way. Maybe the reason that angels and fairies and and all those things that we look at and we call mythology that hundreds and you know really only hundreds of years ago people thought of and saw as real things and believed in as real things maybe the reason that they don't visit us anymore is because they're just afraid of us because we've evolved to a point of such extreme such extremes that we can't accept that something that we that we think is fake or that we've dubbed is fake or that we can't control. Right. And, and so they're just afraid of us. And so this is just them trying to get back to where they were because I mean, think about it. We believed in fairies and gods and angels and these things far longer than we've believed in the science that we hold to as true fact. Right. I mean, don't be wrong. I, again, I will reiterate, I love science and I really love that. It, oh, what it's done to us. It is amazing. But I, so I, I never want to shit on science. I just don't think it's a it sufficiently explains the entirety of existence. Correct. I, I agree. I feel like there are elements of the human experience which get ignored by it. If all of humanity is on some level one and psi abilities fade after, you know, in individuals, the age of eight, perhaps the reason they've withdrawn from us is we are we as a species are going through 
a volatile spiritual puberty in which we have at least temporarily been largely cut off from our psi abilities. And uh, we are at a pivot point where we may regain them and have control over them and reintegrate with the larger truth. Or we could just lose our grasp on them because we go too hard materialist and we don't continue developing those gifts. It's either we're going to destroy the planet and us along with it or we're going to evolve. Yeah. Puberty. So another idea I had, which I did want to mention, is also... uh, Streber talked about maybe a skilled observation will cause them to enter our world shaking like coelacanths in a net. I mean, what if, I mean, how are you talking about? Hundreds of years ago, everyone believed in it, so they were here. What if it very much is? They can own these other entities, uh, any, all these various elements of paranormality. They can only exist in our world if we allow them. We are, by active will, creating reality around us. And, I mean, we've talked about this with, mm-hmm. uh, there are, there are, Hard, hardline scientists in quantum theory who believe that that is absolutely what's happening, that we are actively somehow generating this complex lived hologram. Yeah. Um, the simulation is real. Yeah. And what if it's simply that we, by us simply saying that's not real, are somehow barring them from entering this plane of reality? They're like vampires. They can't come in unless we invite them in. And we have to invite them in as a collective, not as an individual. I mean, that just goes back to what we've been saying since episode one. Invite fairies in? Well, no, we have to, we as a society have to Always invite up. fairies in and give them your name. Got it. I was... Sure. I was also thinking of the idea of, you know, the, the, the idea that characters within a narrative do not have an inherent free will of their own. The person constructing the narrative supersedes their free will. And I was thinking about that because there's one thing that Anne said that is just kind of that 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 just got stuck in my mind when they were asking her under hypnosis, why didn't you get get up and check on Whitley? And she said, I couldn't because I wouldn't Yeah, like it was like, like, yeah. like the, yeah. you know, yeah, of like the idea of like my character wouldn't do that. This character wouldn't do that. And you know, the the idea, it's, and I brought that up just because, you know, we're talking about it's like we're create. what if we're creating the reality around us through just the power of our thoughts of like, do we know for a fact that we are not in some kind of TV show, that we're not in some kind of game? And, and maybe that's what Dharma has been all along of the idea of like, this is the role that you have been sorted into in this particular iteration of the narrative. Maybe this particular iteration of the narrative, maybe this era of the show isn't supposed to have fairies in it. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Interesting. Very interesting. All of this has been very interesting. All right. And we are only one book in out of four. So are we ready to go to the about the author? I... Yes, I think that I I think if we keep going, we're just going to keep saying the same thing in circles. So let's just move on. Okay, so uh, this is the first of four about the authors about Whitley Strieber, and you can expect they will uh, decrease in length and quality as we go. So (laughs) Whitley Strieber was born June 13th, 1945 in San Antonio, Texas to Kathleen Mary Drought and Darrell Strieber. He attended Central Catholic High School and was later educated at the University of Texas in Austin and at the London School for Film Technique after that. As a side note, and as Rory said, he is still a practicing Catholic today. 
He worked for a time at various advertising firms in New York, rising to the level of vice president before leaving in 1977 to pursue a career in writing, with his first published book debuting in 1979. He is associated with the Gurdjieff Foundation, a group dedicated to studying the mystical teachings of G.I. Gurdjieff and P.D. Opensky, and has used their meditative techniques to aid in his ongoing contact with the visitors and later his deceased wife. And as a side note, the name Gurdjieff sounds familiar. It is because he is the guy we talked about in the Secret Teachers episode yep. who believes that we are food for the moon. Yep. Uh, which actually I found out it is more complicated than that. It does. It's not as silly as it sounds. I mean, it is a little silly, but not as it sounds. He is best known for his horror novels, namely The Wolfen, The Greys, and The Hunger, which he has published both before and after communion. And after that, he began to write fiction, which was aimed at addressing the social issues of the time. This included the book War Day, a book about the dangers of nuclear war, co-written with James Kanetka, and a later book, Nature's End, which likewise covered the impending environmental collapse, which we are still losing sleep over today. Yep. He hosts the Dreamland podcast on his Unknown Country webpage, where he continues to advocate for increased research into the paranormal. As yet another side note, this show was initially founded by Art Bell as a sister show to Coast to Coast AM before Streber took it over. His Unknown Country webpage has also been expanded as a resource for news articles related to both the abduction experience and the ongoing climate crisis, forums for experiencers and interested alike, and links to other podcasts which produce under the Unknown Country header. His series The Alien Hunter was picked up for television and was released on the Sci-Fi Channel under the name Hunters in 2016. In addition, his ecological thriller The Coming Global Superstorm was adapted into the 2004 film The Day After Tomorrow. He portrayed himself in the 2009 film Race to Witch Mountain, as well as the upcoming TV movie But Something Is There. And he has appeared as a subject matter expert or interviewee on a butt-ton of documentaries and specials. In March 2014, he and his wife published Miraculous Journey, a nonfiction book documenting Anne's ongoing battle with brain tumors and cerebral hemorrhages. Anne Streber died of her illnesses in 2015, and in 2020, Whitley Streber released The Afterlife Revolution, which was the book we talked about earlier. And I'm going to end this section on a quick quote from him that I quite liked. Quote, Although I am pretty much an outcast and a pariah when it comes to the mainstream, I lead a blessed life and consider myself the luckiest of the lucky. And that brings us to a close of the first episode of the Summer of Streber. The Summer of Streber. Summer of Streber. The Summer of Streber. The Summer of Streber. There, I've said it now. Yeah, I was just going to keep doing it until you did anyway. I know. I I figured that out as I made eye contact with you. It's like, oh, he's just going to keep going until I participate in this little ritual. So does that mean we're going into... Housekeeping! 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 There, There we go. You had some enthusiasm that time. You have enthusiasm for housekeeping, but not our first summer series? I see where your heart's at. The summer of Streber. Is that better? No, you just sounded like a cartoon radio DJ. So if you liked what you heard, (laughs) please like and subscribe on whatever streaming platform that you are listening on. And if it is Apple or Spotify, please do give us a review. Uh, And at this point, I don't care if if it's one star, two stars, three stars, four stars. We just prefer the five stars. So go ahead, drop us a review because it actually does help us get our name out there so that, you know, more people will listen to the show. And if you want to send us an email with any book suggestions, corrections, anything that we got wrong, anything that we said that was real stupid, profanity filled tirades, anything, literally anything at all, you can go ahead and send us an email, noctivigantpodcast at gmail.com. 
And if you want to interact with us, you can do so on social media. We have a pretty active Twitter, at NoctivigantPod. And I have a very active personal Twitter, at MixRoyWix. I'm at BearishTerror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And then we have a plethora of other social medias that you can find us on, uh, including Instagram, uh, Noctivian underscore podcast. Uh, Tumblr.com at Noctivian podcast. There's a Noctivian podcast Reddit account. You know, the name, Noctivian podcast. But I think... I think it's it. I think that's it. All right. Well, uh, coming up in one week, we have an interview with Les Velez of the Opus Network, which is an alien abduction support group. And that is going to be a bucket of fun. And stay tuned, because in two weeks, we're coming back with Transformation, episode two of four of our Summer of Streber. That one's going to be on me, so uh, be prepared for that. <laughs> ah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a great time. Okay. Any, any last final thoughts? You know, no, but uh, it was funny. It wasn't until I was sitting down here that I, I like started looking over at this doorway that we have right over to my left. And I started thinking, how, how scary would it be if you're just looking at a doorway and a little gray just popped its head around the corner uh, and looked at you? Yep. And ever since that, I haven't been able to stop looking at that doorway. So I just want to get out of this basement. Nick, that is every second of my life ever since you people have dragged me over the edge of the cliff into believing into those things. I swear to God, every time I am up late and there is a creek anywhere in the house, I'm just like, yep. This is it. They're going to take me in their stupid spaceship and I'm going to make them regret it for the rest of their lives. <laughs> there, there is one simple solution to that. Stop being the only one awake at four in the morning. I like being awake at four in the morning. It fills me with terror and keeps me sharp. But that's the thing. It's like you keep saying you like being awake at like from like two to four in the morning. But the problem is every time you describe that period to us, it sounds like a horror show. Yep. It sounds like you're sitting in the corner holding a kitchen knife just waiting for something to get you. No, I'm walking around the house waiting for it to get me. But you didn't say you didn't uh you didn't say you didn't have a kitchen knife. No, I I don't I don't carry around kitchen knives because uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to phase out doing things like that. I haven't done that since I was like 13. Hmm. Lot to unpack there, so let's throw the suitcase away. All right. Lead us out of here, Nick. Good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Get lost. No. Don't that. No. Stay safe on the midnight roads. All right, that was my line. Follow the clearly marked paths. Do not separate from your group. If the guy tells you to stay out, you stay out. And just remember, if you look over and you see your best friend standing in a field, but he has deer antlers, you should totally go to him and talk to him. No. Or no. do. I mean, I would agree with that one.
Thinking back on the cardboard business suit that that one entity was wearing, I can't help but think that maybe it was trying to present a uh, sense of formality, uh, but I also think that maybe he had alien prom to go to. <laughs>